Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. You know, on Monday, Jimmy Cook, I let off the show by talking about the big winners based on other people's situation and circumstance. Because over the course of the weekend, every team in the state essentially had a disastrous weekend from a wins and losses standpoint. But I was saying that Damian Lillard made them all winners because the controversy he created in the All-Star game seemed to overshadow the ineptitude of the local college basketball teams, right? Yes. So last night in college basketball, there was a lot of attention, locally speaking, about the Butler Bulldogs in a game that And when John Fanta joins us today on the program, who covers the Big East, going to join us at 1 o'clock today, covers college basketball in general. John, one of my favorite guests because he's super enthusiastic. He's knowledgeable as heck. I just think he's a really good guest. He's going to join us at 1 o'clock. And one of the things I want to ask him, Jimmy, is I think that we get caught up this time of year, perhaps, and I'm going to ask him if, if I'm wrong in this thought, But I started to think about the fact that maybe we put too much emphasis on one game in like in vacuums now, because we're we're at that point where, you know, everybody's waiting in line to get into the party. Right. And there's this there's the bouncer there and he's they've got a dress code and you've been waiting in line for like 45 minutes. And now now you're like right there and you're two away from the door. And the only thing you've just got to make sure that every single thing is in line for you to get into into the party. You've done everything that's been asked, but now you're right there and you're like, I can see the party and I think I'm in, but I don't know. But you don't want to like all of a sudden say the wrong thing to the bouncer. And that's where right now you are with the NCAA tournament. Like teams have their resumes and they're right there. And then you start to think to yourself that maybe one slight little comment is going to get you booted out when in reality, there's a ton that goes into the decision process. And I don't know that one game all of a sudden eliminates a team. But it did feel, did it not, like last night, that Butler and Villanova was kind of like a tiebreaker game potentially. Or a game that, I think Villanova still got a lot of work to do, but a game that that could come down to like one of those bracket busters. But are we putting too much emphasis on one game in a vacuum versus total resume? But the winner last night, Butler gets beat by Villanova. Not good for their tournament resume unless we're talking about totality versus vacuum. The winner last night, the Boilermakers of Purdue. Because here it is, Purdue is declared as the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament, and then they go out and stub their toe on the road to Ohio State, right coming off the heels of UConn, blowing Marquette off the floor, and you're like, oh gosh, there is a huge gap here. Like, all of a sudden, Purdue is a Lamborghini, but a Lamborghini with water in the tailpipe and a piston that seems loose. And here comes UConn as a brand-new Ferrari. 
And then last night, UConn just absolutely, like, they couldn't get the Ferrari past cruise control at 55. You got to put gas in the thing, Jake. <laughs> right. So sometimes you forget right. about the little things. And, and then it's got to premium, you by the exactly. way. You, yep. you can't do that. Have you ever had that nightmare, by the way? It, I almost did it one time where I, I was at a, a pump and they have the, the, the all ethanol gas. Mm-hmm. And I started to, to put, and I'm like, I don't know if my car can take that or not. I have no idea. So, and then I thought, would that blow my car up? What would happen? Now, the diesel usually comes with a, it's a rounder. And usually it's right? green too, the nozzle generally. Correct. As well. <laughs> there's, there's a blatant sign for that one, right? <laughs> yeah. I've had that with a rental car. I didn't, I didn't put the bad usually stuff in. Usually I, I got think worried. the diesel is yellow and the, the ethanol's green because of the green yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. But I've had that nightmare before where I'm like, oh my gosh, I put the wrong one in. But for Purdue last night, the good news is. UConn also showed that they are obviously not only vulnerable but human. I mean, eighty-five, sixty-six. They lose at Creighton, and Creighton's no slouch. Don't get me wrong. I mean, like that. But that, you're back to square one right. for Purdue, right? And, and that's the that's where you go. Is it a vacuum or is it a larger picture conversation? And why I don't envy being on the committee. I think I've missed the boat. But by the way, like selfish. Uh, I don't do this very often, but selfish things I would like to do one day in life. I would like to be a part of that like seminar they do where they invite people down just once, just once, just once, just one time, just to learn more about the we committee process. We should get process. Derek Schultz to call in. He did that once. Did he, he took like yeah, he took like did a he little. Enjoy it. I, he enjoy it. He talked about it for like, I mean, literally. Do you not follow him on social media? <laughs> I do. Today's the seven year anniversary of when I did the fantasy <laughs> overnight camp. He was with that Matt Jones from Kentucky that he said talked the entire time. Anyway, I say that because. The quality of the loss, if you're comparing that, Creighton is a better loss, not even close, compared to Purdue losing to Ohio State. That said, the way the loss happened is where you get into a discussion of nuance and why I don't envy the committee, because UConn got their doors blown off. That wasn't a game. like That was over at halftime. You thought maybe UConn might get a run to start the second half. It never happened, and Creighton worked them. In the second half, Purdue is in that game till the very end. But again, quality of the opponent matters into that conversation. So I don't know if I had a guess, I would probably say Purdue retakes the top overall spot. What about Houston? Houston's right there as well. They 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 are worthy of that conversation too. And that's again why I don't envy any of the committee members. I would think at this stage, though, based on where the rankings were from bracketologists and again doesn't matter but as you pointed out Lenardi's usually pretty good about this he might miss a seed line or two but he's usually pretty good about where the rankings were and for many people it was UConn Purdue one two and then in that third and four third and fourth top overall seed conversation obviously there's four regions it was Arizona and Houston I thought clearly separated away from Purdue and UConn maybe Houston does now have an opportunity to retake that conversation. But for me, it's a close chat, but I'd say Purdue, as of right now, regains control of the top overall seed. Yeah, Houston is right there in the mix. And listen, at some point, Jimmy, Kelvin Sampson, at the time that he was hired in Indiana, was the biggest scum in college basketball. He was arrogant. He was, you know, there are so many things about Kelvin Sampson that you, we could just go on and on. I could go on and on and on. 
I, I think there have been enough disparaging words said about Kelvin Sampson during this time slot on this radio station over the last 10 years that I don't even have to do it, right? But there's no doubt he can coach. And he can coach defense. And his teams swarm you and just – when you play Houston, you absolutely are going to play Houston's game. They they will you into playing the way they want to play. And it is difficult. I, I guess at this point for Indiana fans, I can take some assumed solace for them that the Samson era was so long ago because you had, you know, going from Crean into – Obviously, Archie Miller and then now Woodson. You know, it seems pretty long ago. But the violations that Kelvin Sampson had that got him booted from Indiana are violations that are not even violations in today's world. I don't think, as I've always said, it wasn't the crime so much for Sampson as the attempted cover-up. He was just so arrogant about it. And I will never forget when he got hired at Indiana, Bob Kravitz asking the question of, you have an investigation going on at Oklahoma, and Samson said, yeah, that's just a rule we didn't take very seriously. He didn't say that's a rule we didn't understand. He, he, right there, he said, yeah, there's some rules I just don't think apply. And for Indiana to tout itself all the time as this law-abiding citizen, it just seemed contrary to the Indiana brand. Having said all of that... There aren't laws anymore. <laughs> correct. <laughs> and it makes you wonder... If Indiana would have stuck with Sampson, and I know they really couldn't have. Everybody says if they would have. Well, they couldn't have because the NCAA is the one that booted him out and he had a show clause. But with the show clause and all that, if Indiana had been able to sustain that or or ridden that and kept him, they probably have two national titles at this point. Because if you look at what he's doing at Houston, I mean, the guy can flat out coach. There's no doubt about it. And eventually... Houston's here's a fun trivia question. The University of Houston has been to more Final Fours than any school that has not won a national championship. Ooh, that's so a fun one. Eventually, they're going to have to kick that door down, right? Yeah, and maybe this is the year. Additionally, the whole alternate timeline where, and I get it. There's still a lot of animosity towards Calvin Sampson across this state, but your point is a valid exercise and a fun exercise of like, what if? They would have powered through. What if those measures don't get enacted? Even if we're not talking about national titles for Indiana, the thought that he couldn't do and build what he's done at Houston there is crazy. Like he's just one of those coaches where, regardless of how you feel about him, he's going to be able to build a quality program eventually. And they're going to be constantly in the conversation of national title contender. Look at what he's built in Houston. So, yeah, that's always a weird exercise to go down that rabbit hole and think, what if and where would things be today if not? Correct. Um, but let's get to Butler last night against Villanova. How much of the game did you see, Jimmy? Your thoughts on the Bulldogs coming away from that one? I got to see the second half. I was on the call for uh Ron Colley game. As you know, I do play a play over there. Did Ron so Colley have? Balancing, uh, Ron Colley went to Lafayette Central Catholic. The Royals went on the road, got a nice win. So that was, that was good. Good trip up to the Lafayette area. And yeah, for Butler, it, it's been, there's been struggles as a whole for them the last three games, really the last four games. We talked about this with Nick Gardner yesterday. I went to that game when they played Providence a couple of weeks back, two weeks ago, I guess at this point, and they really struggled in the second half. They gave up a 40 spot to Providence. That was another one of those games, Jake, where you highlighted you are in a bubble matchup battle, if you will, because you want to gain further momentum against 
people that are also chasing the same thing you are, which is a tournament spot. They're able to close on an 11 to 1 run to win that game and it was an impressive win at home to stabilize things and get you going for the home stretch of the Big East. And since then, it's been a 6-point loss against Marquette at home. You got your doors rung at home against Creighton. They they have a habit of doing that over the last couple of games. And then a Villanova game that I said yesterday, and I stand by it, you didn't need, but it's nice to have. When you look at Butler's resume, and a couple of different folks that track bracketology, Jerry Palm included, have pointed out an interesting fact. Only one team, I don't know if it's in the net era or in the history of quad rankings, where you divide the value of each win in college basketball, only one team has been multiple games under 500 of those quadrants and still made the tournament. Butler is 7-11 and 11 in quad one. That's the best win you can have in quad two games. Second best win you can have, obviously. So they still have some good wins, but they have had so many opportunities to stack more that the losses start to add up. However, Butler has another best win you could have this Friday on the road at Seton Hall. Then they host St. John's. They cannot lose on the road at DePaul. Well, they can't, lose, a, a, they can't lose to St. They can't John's lose to St. John's either. either. But you absolutely cannot lose on the road to DePaul. That's a resume killer. That, that it's You know what they should do? Remember when they used to have that, those bracket busters? Do they still do that? Only for mid-majors, and I don't know if it's still a thing anymore. Here's the curveball that needs to come to the NCAA I actually don't tournament. think it's a thing anymore. The NCAA, NCAA tournament needs no help in generating interest, I realize, right? Yep. But here's what they need to do. Can we just get... One more. How many teams right now get in? It's 60, 68. 68, right? What? <laughs> Let's just do some sort of a tournament where we where you take the two teams in college basketball with the worst record at the end of the season. They play each other, and the winner gets to go in as the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> just boot out one of those small conference winners. You know, do we really need like the, you know, whatever, like some... I mean, I hate to say UMBC because they certainly proved their medal, but like, like, can we just get a game? Do you imagine the attendance, the buzz? And let's not put it in Dayton. Dayton's like established itself as a cool play-in place, and the University of Dayton is clearly a launching pad for coaches that then go on elsewhere and don't do anything. But people put it in think, Kalamazoo or somewhere, just yeah, Kalamazoo's cool, right? <laughs> just pick some random town. We'll, we'll go with Kalamazoo. That's cool. Can you look up Eddie? What's the name of the arena in downtown Kalamazoo? They got to have one, right? The Kalamazoo Center, the KC as it's known, right? I just threw out a random city. Do they have to have one? Is that like yeah, sure? Why not? There's got to be stuff going on in Kalamazoo, right? I'm sure. Like every once in a while, Polly Shore does a concert there or something. <laughs> so you get Detroit Mercy, although they're going to have a huge home court advantage if it's in Kalamazoo. But you get one win Detroit Mercy and then like three win DePaul, head-to-head, winner gets into the tournament. Imagine the ratings, right? This isn't just a bracket buster. This is a party crasher. Let's go. I'd rather watch that than watch, you know, two schools that, whatever, like Vermont and and Colgate or something. I, I No, show me Detroit. I want to see... I want to see two teams that combine. What was that school at the beginning of the year that got beat like 116 to nine? Oh, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember the name though. And we looked them up, and it's like they started college basketball like two. It was like old school. It literally was like like ten guys that worked together at a Best Buy and decided to play college basketball and got some sponsorship and started some school. At ten a, coworkers with a dream. That's exactly right. Are you looking it up, Eddie? 
I'm trying to find an arena in downtown Kalamazoo. <laughs> Is there? A, there's got to be like a UM Kalamazoo, right? If it leads off with, I mean, just think about this: the arena's got to be called the Zoo, right? If, hey, you going to the Zoo tonight? It, it does. But if DiscoverKalamazoo.com leads off with hotels, trails, and things to do, I'm starting to <laughs> doubt whether or not there's no, an arena in downtown Kalamazoo. There's got oh, uh, Kalamazoo Arena. Come on, it's there's got to be one. University Arena. Thank you. Okay, there you go. Three hundred million dollar downtown arena for That's Kalamazoo. It's I'm a looking generic at it right here. arena in 2K is what that is. Right here, 2023. The city sells downtown streets, making way for a three hundred million dollar arena, and it's on. Cooley Street. How cool is that? Right? See the, see the stuff we come up with, Jimmy? Right there. Top of your head. Boom. $300 million. Get Kalamazoo's mayor on the phone. I got an idea. Let's go. They spent $300 million on an arena in Kalamazoo. Are you kidding me? That's literally half the price of what Lucas Oil Stadium cost when we built it here. What in the world are they bringing to it? I'll tell you what they're bringing to it. The Party Crasher game. Detroit and DePaul. That's actually why they built the arena in That's the first right. place. They were hoping that obscure ideas like this might come their and way. And it's on Cooley Street, of all things, yeah. right? I mean, it intersects Cooley and Eleanor. Who cares about Eleanor, but Cooley? Uh, let's go. You know, Sinatra was talking about State Street because he didn't know about Cooley Street, believe That's it or right. not. That's now, what I've heard. And Cooley is now coaching where? Oh, he's at. Uh, he, he left, left Providence, Providence right? Georgetown. Georgetown. That's right. Yep. And they're a contender. All the better, right? <laughs> Georgetown's a contender for our suck-in game in Kalamazoo. Like, this is the stuff off the top of our head we come up with. I'm telling you, that's why this company, we're branching out beyond sports. We're in marketing now. We're innovating ideas. Somebody get Chris Ditto on the line. Ditto PR. Let's go. Just put this whole thing. I want right now, I want it trending on Twitter. Kalamazoo play-in game. There you go. Can now, I, I ask- got to check and make sure that it's Detroit and DePaul, though. Can I ask why we're rewarding suck, though? I don't... Yes, to bring back attention. To do, because we've gotten tired of... of cha- you just want to resurrect cool. DePaul. That's all you want to do. It's no, on the top of your list. I want... Listen, at this point, if you're Detroit, you got to have something to play for, right? We're giving trophies to everybody. That's what we're doing. We're softening America. I'm just telling you, the interest would be there. You think it wouldn't. Okay, I'm looking right now. I'm going to scroll college basketball in the 2024 season, okay? These are the teams right now with the fewest wins. and We could make it a four-team tournament if we want. Kalamazoo can host it. They spent $300 million. I think it's a CBI, Jake. I think that's why that exists. I, I'll tell you what. IEPY is in the mix. DePaul, 3-22. and 22. Okay, there, there you go. The invitation's out. Sacramento State, 6-21. and 21. Uh, Okay, they're probably – they're trying hard, but the, they're on the bubble, Sacramento State. Okay. Elsewhere, you got eight and eighteen Michigan. How about that? Imagine the the, the crowds there. Cal Poly, four and twenty two. They're in the mix. Okay. Cal Poly at four and twenty two in the mix. Detroit Mercy, one and twenty seven. There you go. So right now, oh wait a minute, Buffalo four and tw- how is Buffalo four and twenty two? They were like thirty five and four four years ago. Sacramento State is two oh, wait and minute, ten wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a games. <laughs> Hold on. We've see here's again. We might have a we might need a, a suck in tournament before the actual play in suck tournament. But we'd have to do all of it in Kalamazoo because they spent three hundred million. How about, by the way, let's not rule out the Coppin State Eagles. Two and twenty one. So right now Coppin State and DePaul, they are I mean, DePaul is trying hard to lose games, right? Because DePaul's looking at it and they're like, "Look, we're three and twenty-two, fellas. We gotta, we gotta lose out and hope that Coppin State 
picks up a win or two, and we are in, and we are on our way to Kalamazoo. I, I, who would? I'm telling you, this is the kind of stuff right now that that people. The NCAA is based right here in town. I'll bet you right now somebody's driving down Capitol that works for the NCAA, and they're thinking to themselves, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. Th- this might work. Let's drum up some. <laughs> Which do you think drums up more interest? Okay. Which drums up more interest? UNC Asheville and High Point playing for the Big South? Okay. You're asking the wrong guy. I love me some conference championship week. High Point, I though, will watch that game and enjoy it High Point's it a, a bunch deal. of rich kids that have that have laundry services in their dorm and, and movie theaters like <laughs> in the dorm rooms, right? So is Duke. Doesn't mean I want to watch them UNC play. UNC Asheville's claim to fame is they had a guy that was like seven foot five, like six years ago in the tournament, 10 years ago in the tournament, right? So would you rather watch High Point and UNC Asheville for the Big South Championship or Detroit <laughs> battling against Coppin State for the right to be the worst team in the tournament in Kalamazoo in a $300 million state-of-the-art arena? I think I'd rather watch the conference championship game, Jake. I think I just I love me conference championship week. Now, if you modify it a little bit, not to get into the tournament, but it's instead a mini-tournament that is the champion of suck. If that's what's on the line, then I'm locked in. But the idea of giving them a entry into the big dance, I can't can't get behind. I'm sorry. Uh, Aaron Neesmith, by the way, for the Pacers is kind of limited in his return back to practice. Pacers in action tomorrow night hosting the Detroit Pistons. And in Detroit, by the way, the, the folks in Detroit, my understanding, a lot of them are interested in watching the game, but they have a big volunteer meeting for the event in Kalamazoo that's going to be taking place in a couple of weeks. So that's we going to need take some your help. <laughs> Literally. Uh, but Neesmith, they haven't said exactly what his injury was that took place just before the All-Star break, but I think it's safe to say high ankle sprain. I'm not a doctor. I don't want to speak for one, but, but all signs seem to indicate that it was not necessarily like a bone or lower leg injury, but a high ankle sprain of some sort for Aaron Neesmith and I think they're probably going to see a slow kind of reemergence back in within the lineup. I don't think he's going to go full bore per se, and, and he may not play tomorrow night. But he is, Jimmy, I think the one thing that we've learned, and you've heard me say it a lot, he is clearly a very important and versatile piece for Indiana. And he might be the guy, sure, Tyrese Halliburton and Pascal Siakam are critical for them here in the last third of the season. But Aaron Nismith's play is the kind of guy that you need because he's been one of the more consistent guys in knowing what you get night in and night out. It's especially magnified not just because of the value of his contract, which we've talked about time and time again, because it's incredible what they're paying him and the value that is on display for what he brings to the table. But additionally, Jake, the absence of Buddy Heald is going to impact multiple pieces of this roster. We already saw it before the All-Star break. That includes players like Aaron Neesmith, just because of the versatility that the Pacers want out of him at times. Yes, it impacts more Andrew Nemhard and more of Benedict Matherin, Ben Shepard, probably if you're ranking things, but the cohesion of the lineup and trying to tighten things up post-Buddy Heald, where it looked like for a stretch or two in some of those games before the break, but after they traded Buddy, the Pacers looked a bit discombobulated. And when you're looking at a stretch run, there's still, what, 30 games to play? Do I have that right? Right around 30, give or take, between now and the end of the regular season and the start of out of the plane or the playoffs, you can't afford to rush Neesmith back in this first week or two 
and risk losing him for a longer stretch of this second half of the Agreed. season, I, especially with, with how tight the race is. If it ended today, which it wouldn't, but if the NBA said the season ends today, playoffs start tomorrow, we don't care how many games you've played, the Pacers on a technicality would be the sixth seed because they have a higher winning percentage right now than Orlando. That's because they played one more game, right? So that wouldn't stand when the season's end. That larger point is there's still work to be done, and with how tight and compact the Eastern Conference standings are from 5 to 10, you cannot afford to lose a key piece like him by rushing him back. And by the way, in terms of diagnosis, Tony East had a story uh, on Sports Illustrated. He'll join us tomorrow. But I think it had been a shin diagnosis when he was initially injured. And now at this point, it's just a, like you mentioned, lower yeah. leg injury. I mean, that's kind of what Rick Carlisle had gotten yeah. into with the guys uh, on the morning show, KB and Andy, on Tuesday morning. He joins there every Tuesday at 8. And yesterday, he had kind of insinuated exactly that, Jimmy. Um Speaking of key pieces, big piece written about a subject that we enjoyed discussing just before the All-Star game. A guy that covers the Pacers, Nate Atkins, going to join us next. John Fanta, 1 o'clock hour. You're listening on a hump day Wednesday to the Kalamazoo branch. I don't even know what that means. Uh, of the, we are the, let's see. Yeah, we're the Kalamazoo extension. We're doing the job of Kalamazoo today for the Chamber of Commerce of Kalamazoo. How's that? Continuing to brainstorm marketing and brilliance. Sounds right clean here. to me. Querying company on a Wednesday. Now, Tracy Forner, local broadcast legend, he used to do, uh, he was an anchor at Fox 59, then he did a cooking show over there at Wish, and kind of a spirit animal of mine. I think sometimes I, I wonder if Forner and I weren't like adopted out of the same litter at some point. Uh, he tells me that he has a family friend that is the director of the top PR firm in Western Michigan that oversees the Kalamazoo area. See, this thing's already growing legs. That's right. the extensive pre-planning we did before we selected Kalamazoo. We felt like there was already present infrastructure within the city of Indianapolis and the state of Indiana. If so, you're just joining we us, we've elaborated or, or, or brainstormed, and now we're elaborating on the brainstorm of coming up with a tournament suck play-in where the two worst teams in Division One get to play one game and the winner gets to go in as a sacrificial 16th. Yeah, you know, here's the other thing. Is that greater what or lesser than being upgraded from, like, coach to first class? That's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> or like, like back of the plane. Next to the toilet, now you're in first class. Is what yeah, happened. Exactly. No, here, here's what we do. These two teams play, okay, and then they have to play the winner of the of the play in game, and then that team becomes a 16 seed. See okay. what I'm saying? So you go to Kalamazoo. If you win in Kalamazoo, then you go to Dayton. So just to clarify, go ahead. okay, go you go first. I, I just came up with it this way. And I'll table my response to okay. 130 since we have, or you, 1245. You, you go to Kalamazoo. Right now, it would be Coppin State and Detroit. Yep. In the Kalamazoo, and, and we're calling it the zoo, right? In yeah. the zoo. Those two teams play national television, crowd going crazy, right? Not far from Battle Creek, so we'll, Kellogg's will host the whole thing. They're bringing back ESPN right? Classic for totally. one day only. Crowd's going bonkers, right? Kalamazoo's thrilled to have this in their new $300 million arena on Cooley. Yep. So these two teams play. One of them's going to get to potentially a second or third win on the year. And then when they win, they have to then, and this is the fun part, they don't change. Mm -hmm. With uniforms still on, they bust to Dayton. They get off the bus in Dayton. They go right out, and they play the lowest 16th seed in the tournament. And the winner of that game then gets to play in the play-in game on Thursday. 
So so that's the other thing. You get sleep deprivation with this. I mean, there's all kinds of factors in it that are going to draw people in. They're going to do case studies on the psychological yes. impact yes. of this. And then imagine if like Detroit Mercy gets hot and Mike Davis takes him to the final game. I mean, 30 for 30 is galore, right? Yes. All starting in Kalamazoo. This is the kind of stuff that we come up with. Educate and entertain. That, that's what we try to do. Uh, Nate Atkins joins us on the program from the Indianapolis Star. Uh, he has a very interesting article about Jermaine O'Neal that, Nate, I'm going to begin with this. We had had Jermaine on last week just before the All-Star game, and you had a little differing conversation than we did, although some of it was the same, in particular the brawl. I just found Jermaine O'Neal, not that he never was to begin with, but I think it was an opportunity or we are undergoing an opportunity for fans of the Indiana Pacers to realize that Jermaine O'Neal, I think, is a far more mature, I'm not going to say intelligent because there was no reason for us to think he wasn't intelligent, but a mature and at this point, I think, almost sentimental person than we saw as a player. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, it's easy to think back on his career and especially the the topic that dominated that conversation with the brawl and just kind of see him uh, in that moment and see him for, you know, a lot of the you know in, intensity he had on the court and to assume that that, you know, that that leads, you know, and how young he came into the NBA right at 17 years old, right out of high school and just to kind of label him as a as an immature player who wasn't going to grow out of that. Like he almost was like locked into this memory of uh, either that 17 year old version of him or that 26 year old version of him. Uh, the year of the brawl, and that was kind of a very evolving time in his life. Where uh, you know, I know he he went on your guys' show and laid it out too, but uh, you know, he hadn't met his father until he was 30 years old, and he went through a lot in that that period with the Pacers. You know, his, his stepfather you know attempted suicide at that time, and he had kids born throughout there, and now his kids are you know they're they're at that stage where his son's a, a big time high school basketball recruit, his daughter as a professional volleyball player, and so. Uh, you know, people, people, you know, evolve as they go. And I think there's always more to him at the time than we knew, but I think he, uh, the way he kind of laid it out is that he was, he was finding out his ways to express that, figure that out, understand kind of where that, uh, you know, how, how he can do it his way. And, um, and it was just kind of a, a high pressure time for him and his life to be a first round pick with the, with the trailblazers to be the piece that the Pacers brought in to you know, kind of help elevate this team. Uh, with Reggie Miller to try to go get that championship. And then I think all of that kind of came to a head in that moment with the brawl where he sort of, uh, you know, obviously it's such a hectic situation and he just felt like he was uh, needing to step up and be more of a sort of protector for teammates on the court. And you know, that's what kind of bothers him is, is in the 20 years since then, it hasn't really been viewed that way at all. It was viewed instead uh, just that the, he and the rest of the Pacers that were involved were, were just these uh, reckless players um, like I just watched the, the documentary again on Netflix, The Mouse in the Palace, and just the number of outlets uh, and talking heads that use the word thug uh, just really kind of cast him in a, in a fortunate light that he kind of felt trapped in for, for 20 years. And part of that was he wasn't allowed to talk about it because of the ongoing criminal and civil cases. Part of it is he didn't, I guess, I, I don't think always knew how to talk about it. Obviously, there's part of him that didn't want to talk about it because it's not, you know, not a fun topic you want to be able to move past it but I think over time he realized that the way to move past it was to talk about it and really dig into it and address it and, and bring it to light so 
think that documentary was one step. And I think some of the, uh, you know, coming back to Indy this week and going on your show and, and talking to us, and I, I think that's kind of his way to sort of talk through it a little bit and, and show people that, like, there was always more to this guy than maybe you thought at the time, more than you thought heading into the NBA, and certainly more than you think when you just see a, a clip from a, you know, brawl during a basketball game 20 years ago. Nate, I don't want to be overly Freudian with this, but when we talked to Jermaine and when I read your article, which is very well done with Jermaine, and reading his different vantage points, many of which he shared with you that he did not with us and, and vice versa, but I couldn't help but walk away from it. And then after the fact, when when I had a brief exchange with Jermaine just about him coming on our show, um, it seems to me that what we have seen and what we were naive to in the moment and what we overlooked in the moment is that what we were seeing was a young player who was standing up for and defending his teammates and in his mind his brothers in a form or fashion that he felt like no one in his life had done for him. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. You know, that ties it right back to the uh, that, that whole topic about how he grew up without a dad until he got to the age of 30. Uh, you know, and as a guy who was one of the youngest players ever to reach the NBA, didn't feel like he had the opportunity or the leadership around him in Portland, you know, and then gets kind of dropped into a, a team that needs a lot out of him in Indiana. And I remember he, uh, you know, he requested to have a locker next to Reggie Miller. And I think he talked to you guys about how he lived uh, near Isaiah Thomas. And so he was sort of seeking this out. Like there's a part of him that understood that he needed a little bit more uh, mentorship and, and guidance, but you know, you're looking for things and you don't, you don't know what you don't know at that point. So he's kind of going through all this. And he laid out um, you know, to me just how like everything that he learned as a man, it was in real time kind of in front of everybody a lot of the time, you know, in these games, in these moments, interviews, uh, he's growing up from, you know, from 17 to 26, which is when the brawl happened to 30. There's, there's more growth in that span than probably has happened in his entire life. And so, yeah, I think that, uh, the moment on the court that gets, you know, I think all the Pacers players involved, uh, or at least the, the main three, Ron Artest, uh, Stephen Jackson, and, and Jermaine O'Neal, all got kind of just lumped as, as doing the same thing, and, um, and they're all in the wrong, and they were the, you know, it was them against the fans. And I think there's nuance for all of them, but especially for Jermaine, because he was not, you know, he was the only one of those three who did not go into the stands. He was down there on the court at a moment where uh, this environment turned incredibly enraged and fans all of a sudden, it went from fighting with uh, Ron in, in the stands to coming down onto the court and a fan approaches Ron Artest and then the fan is going over there standing over Anthony Johnson. And that was the moment where there's, you know, uh, Jermaine just felt like he was brought here to be an important uh, player and an important piece for this team on the court. All of a sudden that, that call came to him in a moment where the, the play is stopped on the, on the court and he sees a teammate's about to be attacked. And so he, he felt like he needed to run over there and step into it and, and do something about that. And, and mostly that's what it, it seems like the, uh, the, the legal side of this kind of sided with the players over time. They reduced the suspension for Jermaine by 10 games. And they found that, uh, that, you know, the moment we're on our test punched a, a fan on the court you know, he was defending himself because you sort of they came down onto their space at that point. So the, there's criticism to be had for going into the stands where the fans are. Uh, 
even though there's nuance to how that, that started. But certainly when the fans are coming down onto the court in an environment where there's only three police officers working uh, in the documentary, one of them didn't even know who Reggie Miller was. So these players did not feel at all protected. Uh, they didn't feel like they had any chance, any choice other than to sort of, it's sort of like a, you know, a hit or be hit situation in that moment for him. And you know, you can nitpick it and criticize it, I think, but to him, he was, he was just doing the thing that he was uh, brought here to be, which is, you know, a, a face of this franchise. And unfortunately that happened in, in a very dark moment where there, there really wasn't a lot of winning to be had. It was either let your teammate be attacked or be the one attacking. And, uh, and unfortunately for him, that sort of became the label for him going forward. Nate Atkins of the Indy Star is our guest. Nate, when we talked to Jermaine, it was still prior to his arrival here in Indianapolis for the All-Star festivities. With your conversation, you were talking to him after he had had that opportunity to meet up with other Pacers greats, meet up with Donnie Walsh, as you highlight in the piece that he had thanked Donnie, as you highlighted it for the first time, of bringing him from Portland, Indiana, and basically having a rejuvenation for his career as it was kind of stalling out in his early seasons at Portland. We know his accolades. I think a lot of people my age, I was a kid when Jermaine was with the Pacers, but view him in such high regard. I would like to see, if not a Jersey retirement ceremony someday, some type of honor to come his way. I don't know if the Pacers will do that, but I think the Pacers fan base would like to see something like that happen. As you documented all those interactions and him returning back to the place where he still has a 317 area code, all the love that fans gave him this week. Do you think that was enough in terms of a reminder for him of how much Pacers fans do still love and appreciate him? Or do you think there's still a sense of longing for a more public acknowledgement for what he meant to the franchise? I think there's two different camps for him, which is one is, uh, actually, you could say three different camps. There's there's the fan base, which I do think he feels loved from this week. Uh, people have kind of been able to hold on to the kind of the, the high moments rather than just, you know, just one moment from the brawl. Uh, there's the teammates he was with, and we know there was, you know, he, he went at it with, with Ron Artest a bit. But for the most part, you know, we loved Reggie Miller and loved his time playing here and wanted to retire here and uh, Donnie Walsh, you know, being a part of that too. He brought up Herb Simon. So those, those kind of individual characters, I think he's very close with, but there is something missing between him and the team still. Uh, you know, he's, he, he talked I think, to you guys a little bit and he's, he, he made a post about how, you know, he didn't love that they keep, you know, passing his number along number seven and Buddy Heel had it. And he brought up how that was never intentional, you know, targeted to Buddy, but just the fact that they keep giving that number out so much. So not only not retiring it, but, you know, just kind of cycling through it as if it, it didn't mean a lot. Um, he brought up how, like, in his years with the Celtics at the very end of his career, he, he had his agent call the Pacers and ask if he could come back and retire. And he was open to either kind of, you know, a last dance season on the bench there or just dying to have, like, a one-day deal with a press conference and they didn't seem interested at all. So you kind of package that all together. And he just felt like they kind of moved off of him pretty quickly after identifying him as that missing piece and building him as a, a you know, a cornerstone player. And I could just kind of feel the, uh, that sense of, of regret or, or sense of frustration in him when I asked if, if he thought they'd ever retire his number. And he just looked down and he just looked really, really angry for about two seconds. And then he just said, you know, it's it's whatever's God's will at this point. And it kind of it brought me back to another comment he had where he said, 
you know, the year after he asked if he could retire at the Pacers and basically got ignored in his very final season, he stopped even thinking about that. He almost sort of like uh, it, it would make him too mad to, to think too much on that, or he just didn't see that as a possibility. So it's a weird kind of mix right now because I think coming back here to Indy this week, you know, brought him back in with seeing, you know, Donnie Walsh and Reggie Miller, guys that he loved and the fans and the reception from them. But there still is something a little bit missing when he then goes into Gainbridge Fieldhouse, you know, for the All-Star game and his jersey's not up there and there's just not a lot he feels like from the franchise publicly in any way that's kind of taking his back. And I think some of that, you know, in a celebratory way, but some of that goes back to, even during that time at the brawl, he didn't quite feel like they wanted to to step out there and speak on his behalf either. So, I, I don't think I, I don't sense that he feels like it's a, a perfect relationship with the team, even though uh, he does have high regard for the individual people that were there at the time. You know, I remember Nate covering Jermaine O'Neal late in his career here, and I remember what I still remember exactly where we were—the tunnel leading out to the practice floor. When in a group interview, he said that. He thought and wanted his number to be retired and thought it should be. And at the time, I mean, it was like an eye roll amongst everybody, right? And and now, over the course of time, you know, things whittle away a little bit where it makes a little more sense. But in the moment, it was certainly like people were like, dude, really? Um, but now I think we have a better understanding just how good a player he was. Real quick, two things before we go, Nate. Nate Atkins from the Indianapolis Star is our guest talking about his piece with Jermaine O'Neal. But um, – Yes or no, in the next two weeks or I guess 12 days, whatever it would be, Michael Pittman Jr. gets a franchise tag? It's a great question. I'd have to, if I had to guess, and that's all we're doing at this point is, is really guessing, I think he will, uh, just in the sense of giving the Colts an opportunity to sort of play out this extension talk with him. So if he's acknowledged that the franchise tag uh, can lead to a long term deal, that's what it was initially placed in there for, even though some teams. Don't use it that way. They use it more as a rental. But I think Chris Ballard has, has thought a ton about this. Obviously, he's thought, thought a ton about this, but especially in relation to the last time they had a conversation with the star player about the franchise tag was with Jonathan Taylor. And that led to you know a lot of, of discontent because it felt like that wasn't, uh, the, that wasn't a tool out there to sort of create a long-term deal. Um, so if he's going to use it this time, I think it, has, it, it should be more in that uh, that realm, that conversation. He's talked to Pittman a ton about it. So I think we're going to know pretty quickly. Uh, it's you know if he uses it, I think that's that's what it's going to be for is to to just sort of keep other teams from bidding on him. To you know, it's, there's a little bit of a price discount, but not a lot because he still has a lot of leverage as a wide receiver at this stage in the NFL uh, with, with his accomplishments. Uh, but I think that if they if they don't franchise tag him, I fully expect Michael Pittman to court just about every offer that's out there. He really wants to see what the interest is like, what all the possible landing spots are like, the possible quarterbacks and offensive coordinators he could play with. He's been he's been looking forward to this for a long time. So I don't think that there's going to be an extension without that sort of uh, open free agency f- from his side unless they go ahead and they franchise tag him. But like I said, to, to be able to do that and not you know enrage another star player, to be, to be able to do that and have a kind of good negotiation from then, I think they have to communicate it well. And, and my understanding is they've talked so much about this and other topics and gotten to know each other so close that they are both pretty straight shooters. Uh, I, I have a feeling that they've uh, that, that there's a plan in place here. And if I had to guess, I think he will be franchise tag. But more is just a way to 
to kind of prolong the negotiation until they can get the right numbers down. Nate, explain this to me like I'm a third grader because I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, I was an Indianapolis News Honor Carrier, for that matter, when I was a kid, which was, of course, aligned with the star. I've always had a great love and passion for the getting the newspaper, reading the newspaper. I have a lot of friends that work with you and colleagues at the newspaper. I have a couple that probably don't like me at the newspaper because – at times, I've been frustrated by what I have seen as you guys being put in difficult situations due to cuts beyond your control by the parent company. But I see today what I guess is good news, that they are going to start investing more money and more more resources in for you guys. Can you, in 30 seconds, like I'm a third grader, tell us what the upshot is today for Gannett and the Indianapolis Star? Yeah, I think the upshot today is, is just kind of on a basic level that it is an actual investment back into the newspaper, which is the opposite of kind of what you laid out, where for many years it's been sort of downsizing and cutting costs and kind of and at times, unfortunately, cutting staff members and cutting resources. And so uh, that's kind of happened, you know, unfortunately, across Gannett and many other newspapers and other companies. That's just unfortunate. The, the time that we're in, but this was a move that Gannett wanted to make to, to put $2 million back specifically into the Indy Star uh, to hire some of the positions that we have open, which is several. We've had some on the news side open since uh, since last fall. So uh, it, it's a way to sort of be a little bit more uh, competitive to you know, salary-wise to get some of the, the reporters in here, get just get kind of more manpower. Um, as we've had so many openings that have happened, either layoffs or people leaving kind of under just the, the fear or the, the stress of of all that's happened in our industry. So it's not, um, you know, it's a, it's a good sign. It's not necessarily going to fix everything that's going on, but I do think it's positive momentum in a way that, that, you know, the news industry and our paper specifically has needed for quite some time. And I'm hoping that it's sort of that, that boost to help covering more of this city uh, in showing the, the people of the city, you know, all the great efforts we do on both the sports and the news side, which is, you know, won two Pulitzer Prizes uh, just in the in, in the past 10 years or so. So uh, we're certainly hopeful that it's going to lead to some good stuff. $2 million investment in Indianapolis operations. That is the second story right now on IndyStar.com. Only underneath, Pacer star Jermaine O'Neal opens up on the brawl 20 years later, written by Nate Atkins. Nate, appreciate it, and have fun covering the frenzy here of Franchise Tag and Colts Free Agency as well. Yeah, we'll do. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Nate Atkins from the Indianapolis Star. Last night in college basketball, we talked about it. It was not a good night for Butler. It was a worse night for UConn, a guy that covers that conference and more. John Fanta is going to bring, strangely enough, is bringing Shasta, but he's going to join us in about 10 minutes. This is going to be the theme song for the Kalamazoo Arena when we have the the Suck Tournament, right? I feel like my dad's taking me to school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for show context, my dad is born in 1930, so there you go. That's I'm telling you, man, Glenn Miller. This puts me in the mood, baby. In the mood for the <laughs> NCAA tournament suck game that we have come up with on this program. If you're just joining us, where have you been? I've we decided that in Kalamazoo. See, Eddie's singing along. He's got the toe tap, and he's never heard that before. There's no way. But, but nonetheless, in Kalamazoo, we determined that they have a $300 million arena that's being built. And I'm not certain what – so far, I think, in the Kalamazoo $300 million Kalamazoo. arena, what I can tell, uh, <laughs> they've got a ice fishing travel show that's going to be coming through, right? Uh, Casey got, and the Sunshine Band and a Polish Shore Michigan. 
Western Michigan play there? Yeah. The the, the Broncos going to play there? Yeah, that's where they're based. That's where their college is, is in Kalamazoo. Okay, so maybe Western Michigan's playing in the arena? Which so one we, of those doesn't belong? Western Michigan. No, no, of the of the of the upcoming events. Cuz I feel like Casey and the Sunshine Band, that's a that's a big win for Kalamazoo. So it's Pauly Shore. Yeah, I mean I don't mean to understand I mean, Pauly Shore. The, the ice fishing show, those are all bigger than Calum- than Western Michigan basketball. Yeah. N- no offense to Joe Wrights. But but here's the thing. So <laughs> The play-in, the suck game. I have an issue with one thing with this. We don't Detroit have time now. Mercy and Coppin State are going to play in Kalamazoo in the $300 million new arena. Yep. And Casey and the Sunshine Band, my understanding, we might be able to get them to play halftime. Ooh. A couple songs. Right. Probably two, three songs, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Right? So put on your boogie shoes. And, I mean, it's perfect. Put on your boogie shoes and then go dancing because one of the winner of the game is going to go dancing. Now, somebody else said it should be the loser. That That's a good point. The loser actually gets to go and go to Dayton, right? I'm telling you, this thing. Got to figure out who sucks more, yeah. L- yeah. I mean, listen, great ideas, guys. I, I got news for you. I, I, the Apollo mission. That started with a couple jackasses sitting around and one of them making a joke and all of a sudden they're like, you know, we should go to the moon. And then boom. I mean, I know Kennedy gets credit for it, but that's not what happened. No, I'm there with you, though. Space exploration and putting Kalamazoo a, on the map. It was, a radio, right it was a radio show on an AM station in Clovis, New Mexico. Three guys were sitting around, and one of them was like, you know, we should go to the moon sometime. Uh, John Fanta is going to join us, and he's going to do it next. My buddy Derek texted me. Derek was the supplier, by the way, of the bed frame for Matthew. Now that we got Matthew from Maine all moved in, thank you to everybody that contributed. Roger as well. Um... Derek says, Michigan has so much pot tax money, they're just building arenas in random places. That's probably true. But we're going to turn Kalamazoo into an NCAA tournament site. Derek Schultz? <laughs> Not Derek Schultz. No, no, we needed a full-size bed frame. Um, joining us now on the program, a guy that I think does as good a job covering college basketball as anybody that you're going to find, primarily in the Big East. And John Fanta, I want to begin by saying this. I have told you this before, but I'm going to repeat it, and there's a reason for it. To me, you are one of the best radio guests that we have because you have a very unique ability to be able to give really good information, but in a fashion that the listener feels like they've known you forever. And that's a unique skill set. But for that reason, I think people feel like this personal connection to you. And we were going to have you on a few weeks ago, and very understandably, you were not able to do so because your father had passed. And so... I first want to offer on behalf of our listeners who feel like they know you and those of us on this program are very uh, sincere condolences and I can only imagine from your father's standpoint that you did what anybody would want to do and that is you allowed your father to pass as a very proud individual of your accomplishments. So my condolences to you and with that, thanks for the time today. Um, well, thank you so much, guys. Thank, thank you for saying that. Um uh, and I appreciate that the the ability to relate with people that that means a lot, you know. For me, uh, my dad taught me. I'm sure, like a lot of your listeners, uh, we count on our fathers to teach us about work ethic and to teach us about doing the right thing. And and both you know both my parents have taught me that. But but my dad really uh, he inspired me to pursue the passion that I have, and uh, he said, you know, you you want to carry that passion with you every single day, and you can control a couple of things in this world. There's a lot of things that are out of all of our control. Uh, you know, I wish I wish my dad was still around right now, but 
we we all don't control that uh and and i think for me what i can control is living in his honor and and uh you know, I, I, I think the thing that comes to mind most is is he said you can do two things. You can you can outwork people, you can put your head down and work as hard as possible. Uh and the second thing is you can be a kind person to deal with, you know? And uh that that's how I've always tried to carry out my business and, and that's how I've always tried to do this gig and you know, I, I love college basketball, I love sports, I grew up in Cleveland and uh, you, you grow up living, breathing, dying Cleveland sports there, and, and college basketball has become my forte, and I love the passion of it. I love the fans. That's why we do this. That's why you guys are on this show right now. We do it for the people that are listening and tuning in. We appreciate those people because without them, it wouldn't be as fun, and so I miss him, but uh, I know he wouldn't want me moping. People ask me every day, how you holding up? I say, I'm, 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 you know what? It's a new day. It's a new opportunity, and I know that sounds cliche, but my dad would be in my ear saying, hey, don't sit tight and not do what you love during the best time of year. This is prime time in college basketball. It Get is, man. It. You're right. That's what I'm doing for him. And your dad is like, listen, you got to go on Quarry and Company and speak to all seven people that they've got <laughs> listening to their program, right? I mean, so, John, we appreciate it. Hey. hey. He loves Casey and the Sunshine Band. So way to come out of break. Way to come out of break with See, that. See, I knew it. I knew that we were doing it all for. It was all coming together for us. John, I want to begin with this. I, I had mentioned this earlier, and I want your your thoughts on this. John Fanta, who of course covers college basketball for Fox Sports and primarily in the Big East, we'll talk about Butler in a second. But to use, I guess, the Butler game last night with Villanova, we can look at that right now because we are closer to the tournament selection day and say. Well, this is like a, a play-in game, or this is a make-or-break game. Do we put too much emphasis at this time of year on games in a vacuum? Does it really matter, or is it simply looked at in totality? Or, because of recency bias when the selection committee gets together, are these games more important than, say, if they were in early December? Yeah, I I do think that they're more important, and I I don't know if the committee would ever admit that, but let's face it. If I'm a committee member, I'm really watching every single night all these bubble teams. I'm I'm zoning in on them because we can go down the pathway of metrics all we want, and and there are several – pieces that they use there you know one of the one of the pet peeves i have this time of year guys is everybody's bringing up a team's net all right everybody's bringing up a team's net the committee has never said that the net is the number one determinant of whether or not they select a team and it's not because if it was then a team like smu with a top 35 net would be in the tournament they're not even close to the NCAA tournament. So the, the thing is, and, and their net sits at 36 currently, uh, the thing is, this time of year does matter because you can't tell me the eye test isn't a part of this, right? The committee went to the Marquette-Butler game uh, last week. They saw Butler play live. You know, Butler's, Butler has an advantage. Purdue has an advantage. Indiana has an advantage. Because, you know why? The committee, when they meet in Indianapolis, they go to these games. They go in person. They watch these teams play uh, because the NCAA offices are in Indianapolis. Of course, I guess it could be yeah. a disadvantage to some extent, John, right, if you completely stub <laughs> your toe because you can't kind of hide an anonymity. Anonymity is the That's wrong right. word, but you get what I'm saying, right? No, I, I do get what you're saying, but I, I, I do think these games matter more because here's the thing. If a team loses 6 of 7 in December, right, 
versus a team losing six of seven this time of year. Let's say around that December, everything else they did was pretty well. Was was good enough to good enough to uh, to, to make the, the tournament. If you lose six of seven this time of year, and you were already sort of floating near the bubble, you're giving the committee an out. You're giving them an out. You're giving them an explanation. What you don't want to do in this, you don't want to give the committee a reason to keep you out. Because we often say they got to find 68 somehow. Yeah, but it starts with 362. It starts with 362 teams. Now, several of those teams are eliminated from tournament conversation before the season even starts. But at the end of the day, 19% of the teams that play in college basketball make the postseason. Just less than one-fifth. If you give the committee a reason to keep you out, they'll be delighted to keep you out because it keeps them from getting all that negative feedback. So this time of year, if you are near the bubble, yes, one night can change your season. Just like in November or December, to a lesser extent, if you beat number one or if you beat a top five team, that result can carry unlimited mileage. John Fanta of Fox College Hoops is our guest. <clears throat> Tried to power through that, couldn't do it. <laughs> John, I went to the Butler-Providence game a couple weeks ago. I've highlighted it a couple times here on Query and Company, and Butler looked great in the first half. And then the second half, they give up 40, but they close on an 11-1 to run. They win that game. I feel pretty good about Butler's chances to make the tournament, and now it's three straight losses against good competition, but three straight losses, to your point, all the same at the wrong time of year for that to happen. And they've had second-half struggles. They've had key pieces that have like Posh Alexander, that have struggled for them offensively. And now where they stand, whether they're outside looking in or they're still one of those last four in spots, they go Seton Hall on the road, at home St. John's, away at DePaul, home against Xavier. From my perspective, and I know neither of us are committee members, but you follow the Big East better than anybody. From my perspective, if they win out, I think they're probably in. I think they don't need to make noise in the Big East tournament. If mm-hmm. they drop one... I feel like then you're asking them to do something they historically have not done the last decade, which is do well in that tournament. Do you see it the same way, or am I oversimplifying Butler's situation? No, you're not oversimplifying. You know why? I have evidence to prove it. Only one Big East team in the history of the league, old, new, whatever, has missed the NCAA tournament with at least 20 wins. It was John Beeline's West Virginia team. This is years ago. In other words, if Butler gets four more wins, they're going to be at 20 and 11. They will be, they will have road wins over Marquette and Creighton. They will have a road win over fellow bubble team Seton Hall. They will be in. They will be in. But this Saturday night game at Seton Hall is a massive game. I think it's a must win game for Butler. I don't think you can allow yourself to lose five of six games this time of year. That's, that's what we call danger time. That's serious danger time. And here's the other reason why. After this game at Seton Hall, is there a move-the-needle resume opportunity? The answer to that question is no. Home St. John's, not a great win. St. John's has fallen off the map. At DePaul, you'd be better off sending DePaul a check and not even going over to Chicago. They'd probably (laughs) take the money to help pay for their new coach because uh, they're they're so bad, it's it's, – you're – you know, it's just not a it's not a positive experience to have to go and play them. You gain nothing from the game. Just stay healthy, knock on wood. Then home Xavier. The fact is Xavier's fallen off the tournament map. So for Butler's resume, 
this game at Seton Hall is huge. If they can couple a win at Seton Hall with, with wins after that, they're going to make it. They're going to take momentum into the Big East tournament. They're going to make it. The issue is, tell you what, that game Saturday is tough. Seton Hall's going to have a lower bowl sellout. They've had a very nice year, guys. I mean, uh, Shaheen Holloway deserves an immense amount of credit, the fact he's got this team competitive. They're like Butler. They have their NIL constraints, They, they meaning they – they don't have a lot of money to pay players, but they've got five quad one wins. They beat UConn, and they're eleven and three at home on the season. So Butler has their hands full Saturday night. They got to be ready for Kadari Richmond. John Fanta is our guest, college basketball writer, television, everything for Fox, as well as you know, primarily the Big East. John, we were talking about this earlier. I want to run this past you because you're a college basketball guru. You ready? Now, I need you to, to think outside the box here for a second. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, great. So so here's what we decided. Kalamazoo, Michigan, apparently has built a $300 million arena, and it's on Cooley Street, which is that alone is, is cool enough. But we've decided that the, the NCAA tournament, people love it. They love Selection Sunday. They love hearing you talk about it. They love hearing about breaking down, like, quads and the whole deal, right? And so – I think we get we're not focusing enough on the greatness that is Detroit and Coppin State with the Paul hanging around as the worst teams amongst all of them in Division One. So in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I think we should have what we call the suck play in game, where the two teams with the worst record in college basketball play, and then the winner has to go directly to Dayton and play the lowest sixteen seed with the winner of that game getting to play into the play in game to then try to go on. Your thoughts. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yes. I knew you would, John. I knew you would. Right? Let's go. Let's make this happen. Let's make this happen. <laughs> yes. So, wait, so, okay. So, so who's playing who? No, here's what I think. Okay. Right now, and this is, and yeah, John, yeah. this is, this is what makes it beautiful. We need, because we focus so much on, you know, Butler and Villanova and the importance of that game or Creighton and UConn, which we haven't even talked about yet. And like UConn and Purdue battling for the number one seed overall and Houston's right there. I mean, I get it. Right. But we need to focus on the fact that there's a, another race in play here, and that is that you have one win Detroit Mercy and two win Coppin State with three win right. DePaul hanging around. De- DePaul is thinking to themselves, guys, we just need a couple of these teams to win a couple games, and we've got a chance to be the worst, right? I mean, that's what you want. So you go to Kalamazoo, you play in this right. new arena in Kalamazoo, and then you have the chance to represent the worst the worst of the worst, right? Maybe you even just send the loser of the game into the tournament just to make it fun. Because can you imagine yeah. if Mike Davis goes I mean, on a run? It's like old school American Idol. I think there was one audition that was so bad. <laughs> yes. Randy, Randy Jackson and Paul Abdul said, you know what? Put him through. Yeah. We, we want – this is what we're doing. Like Detroit Mercy, who's going to be the William Hung of the NCAA tournament? That's what we're looking for, right? Let's right. go. I think that's it. Yeah, well, exactly. Who's going to be a William Hung of the NC? Yes. I never thought those words would be said, but I love it. I mean, look, you know, there's those there's those um, social media accounts, sickos, college football and basketball, like the worst of the worst in the sport. And uh, I'll tell you what, I mean, as much as there's some great teams in this sport, there are some god-awful ones. So the, the crazy thing about it is I would, I would watch – Cop and stay play Detroit Mercy. Just give me a bag of popcorn and a Miller Lite, and I'm all set. <laughs> or a case of it, right? Hey, John. Right, um, or maybe a case of it, exactly. Listen, Connecticut, back to, to the reality here. Uh, you know, 
we know that Purdue was tabbed as the number one overall seed. Then they stubbed their toe at Ohio State. And Connecticut looked like an absolute juggernaut. They get beat. I think that we in Indiana focus on this jockeying back and forth between Connecticut and Purdue, who could be the number one overall seed in the tournament. I think both are safe as number one seeds for now. But how close is Houston? Is there really that much of a gap between Houston uh, and then Connecticut-Purdue? Well, uh, I, I think I think Connecticut is is the best team in the country that came off of an emotional dominant win over Marquette and the other team last night in Omaha, Nebraska plays in one of the best home court atmospheres in the sport, but hit 14 threes. They had their night and they were, they were ready for revenge and they got them. They got them. Uh, but you've won 14 in a row. You know, I was starting to, to wonder when was UConn going to lose again? And not not is it bad, but like, it was feeling like Big East play was getting a little bit stale gentlemen. Like I was wait, waiting for somebody to blink. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, I, I think I think Houston is better than Purdue, okay? And I'm a little bit contrarian. Uh, I, I think Purdue is a, a, a really, really good team. Could be a great team. Uh, they're, they're a great team. They could be a national championship team. But Sunday concerns me because – I want to buy fully in. I'm at the register right now, and I want to tell you that I'm all in on Purdue to win it all. But, you know, you lost to an Ohio, UConn lost to a Creighton team that's top 15 in the country, right? Purdue lost to a team that had lost nine of its last 11 games and was well, well off the map. I know they get the emotional boost from a coaching change, so you're going to play with pride. But opponent aside, you know, what this comes down to back for me is, like, Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith, they've got to be that dynamic duo. Game in and game out. Game in and game out. This team's got some other pieces with Lance Jones and Drake Kaufman wren But in this loss to Ohio State, Fletcher Lawyer went one for seven from the floor. He and Lance Jones combined to go four for 18. And Purdue went three of nine from three. A team that they're so potent from the three-point arc. And they're able to, to, to make threes at a, at a high rate. They've done that this season. But as much as you can live by that, you also can die by it. And I think what you're going to see teams do in the tournament is they're going to sit here and say, you know what, we will let the best player in the country do his thing. You're not going to stop Zach Eady. He's Godzilla on the interior. He's unstoppable. But what you can do is – you can sit here and say, we're just going to make an extremely conscious effort of taking away the three-point line from Purdue. Now, what's interesting is, last night, Creighton held Connecticut to three for 16 from deep. And what happened? Connecticut got their doors blown off because Creighton fought through screens. They went over on screens, and they said, we're not letting UConn's guards beat us. That type of formula, it, it's interesting because, like Edie, Klingon's in there for UConn, but then they space around him. And it's hard, but the right teams, if they've got the length and the versatility defensively, they could be disruptive. They can create turnovers. What's the other issue if you take Purdue's three-point ability away? Edie is a willing passer, guys. He had the three assists against Ohio State. He also had six turnovers. Now, that's an outlier performance, 
but it's illustrative of the defensive approach that Ohio State took. Ohio State said we're cutting off threes. Because if you give Purdue with a seven foot four, three hundred pound monster eight or nine threes, they're not going to lose. They're not going to lose. Uh, so that's my concern with the Boilers and why I, I, I actually don't have them one or two today. Could they move? Could of course they could be back to number one in no time. Uh, but I think it's also illustrative of college basketball in general. What makes this sport great is this year is that there's a, a, a ton of parity. There's there's so so much parity across the board. But there also is an echelon of teams at the top that I think I'd be surprised if they if they lose early. That's the interest factor. And I'll tell you this. There has never been a situation where we've been watching a one versus 16 game to the degree that we'll all be watching Purdue in their first NCAA tournament game back on the big dance floor. But right now, UConn is, is still my best team. Do I think they'll be ranked number one on Monday? No, I am a believer in if they lose, it's a results-based thing when you make rankings. I had some people say, well, I'm not moving Purdue at all. Well, like you have to, you have to account for teams' wins and losses. What you think a team's resume is and their seeding is in the NCAA tournament isn't necessarily where you have them ranked in your top 15 or top 25 ranking system. Right now, you know, Purdue would be about three for me, uh, but I, I give a slight, you know, I give a lot of credit to Houston, who's having a sensational year, guys, and they're in year one in the Big 12. I was going to say, in a new Houston, league, right? You know it? Yeah. They've, they, they've handled the transition with ease. College Hoops broadcaster and reporter for Fox Sports, John Fanta, is our guest. John, you host a Field of 68 podcast where you cover the bracket in every angle you could possibly imagine and sometimes even have those reactionary ones after a big Tuesday night, your late night edition that you had last night. Sticking with Purdue, I would argue, A, no college fan base in the country is going to be upset that the debate that's happening is, oh, which one seed are we going to be? Like That's a great problem right. to have for Purdue basketball. Right. And you're right, there is a sense of the ghosts of tournaments past, most notably FDU last year. Mathematically speaking, you're right, we're going to watch that game intently. It's near impossible for Purdue to lose to a 16 again. That's not the game I'm worried about. Maybe Purdue <laughs> fans are. I'm worried about, depending on the draw, where they move along. That said... When you look at Purdue, the landscape of college basketball you just outlined, where there's an upper echelon, clearly, but it's also a wide-open tournament this year, it feels like, as well. Is Purdue more in danger of matchup problems in the Final Four, or like making it because they're the best team clearly in their region, or are they more worried about matchup problems like you saw Creighton-UConn last night, where it's a team that defensively is going to be as aggressive to take away the three-pointer and perhaps they're just a better team that night? I think it's a ladder. I really do. Uh, I actually think that, that, that for Purdue, if they get on that run, right, and they get to a Final Four, uh, I, there's a world where I, I'm sitting here saying, I think they're my front runner to win the national championship. You know why? For them getting to the Final Four could be harder than the Final Four itself. And you might be saying, How? Are you crazy? They're going to face even better teams in the Final Four. But you know what? Purdue, here's the thing, guys. Purdue's faced all these heavyweights this year. It's nothing new for them to play against an elite team. They went to the Maui. They won the Maui. They beat Tennessee. They beat Gonzaga, who's, who's on the bubble now. But they, they beat Marquette. They right? beat Arizona. They yeah. beat Arizona. Yeah. They beat Arizona. They beat Alabama, who's in first place the SEC. I'm not worried about Purdue if they get to the Final Four. Uh, by that point, I'll be impressed that they made it, that they broke through, that they did it. 
all the the pressure on them is getting there. No question, it's uh, John. Getting there, I, they've got to have the voices the in their head, four. right? What's that? They've got the thing. The thing that to me. I mean, to your point, the the thing when you look at Purdue, let's say Purdue, Connecticut, Houston, and we'll throw Tennessee in there, right? The one thing that Purdue has that those teams don't is the whispers in their ear and the echoes yeah. of North Texas and Little Rock, even though that wasn't this group, and then certainly Fairleigh Dickinson. Once you get past, you break through that first barrier, then it's like a weight off their shoulders, seemingly. And I think they're going to have an 8-9 matchup against an athletic team, perhaps, that could give them fits. But they get past that. They make it into weekend two. To me, they've gone, they've they've made it through the hard part. I could not agree more with you. Yeah, I think that's it. It's, it's a psychological thing early in the tournament. You're right. If I'm an 8 or 9, let's face it, the 8 or 9 who sees Purdue as the one in their bracket is going to start clapping. Purdue's got to use that to their advantage. They got to come out and show you, you don't want to play us. I liken it to 2015, 16 Villanova guys. So going into that tournament, we were like, well, this Villanova team, they've got it. Like they, they could make the final four. They beat UNC Asheville in their first game. They blew out Iowa in their second game. Then they play Miami and we're kind of walking in saying, well, Miami's really athletic. They're quick. They can, nope. Uh, Villanova blew them out. They beat them by 23. Then you get to the Elite Eight game, and they play Kansas. And and what was the narrative going into the game? The narrative going into the game was they can't do it. Villanova can never break through in this spot. This is not Jay Wright's thing. That was the mental hurdle that they had to battle. They beat Kansas. It was almost as if once they got to the Final Four, I remember being in the press room and the whole thing was, well, you know, they finally did it. They got here and it was like, everything was off their back. That's what I feel like with Purdue. What if they get to the final four for this program, I'm not saying you're not trying to win a national championship. That's not my argument at all. But when you haven't been to a final four since 1980, that will shed off the weight of that history. So that if you're then in the final four, at that point, you're just, you're, you're on the ride of a lifetime and you're playing. It's early in the tournament when every narrative is going to be, they can't do it. They can't do it. They can't do it. Like it was with Virginia in 2019, that they're going to have to fight it. Cause once you get to the final four, all the narratives of you can't, or all the stuff that's negative, when you get the four teams, you're not talking about their flaws. You're talking about all their strengths. And this team, if they get there, will be ready for that. I totally feel that. He's John Fanta, covers college basketball for Fox, and you can also hear him commentary on the Field of 68 podcast all throughout March. And next year, going to join us in Kalamazoo. Exactly. He'll be there with us Week in Kalamazoo. The yeah. John, I appreciate you making time for us as always. And as Jake mentioned, there's a lot of people, myself included, that can relate to losing a parent. Our condolences to you. And as you mentioned, like your dad would tell you, enjoy this, enjoy every moment, and continue to make your family proud as we are at the best time of year, the countdown to March Madness. Thank you guys. God bless you. I really appreciate the well wishes and hope to talk with you guys soon enough. Sounds good. John Fanta, always appreciate, uh, appreciate it from Fox sports. Uh, and again, look, there's a lot to love about John, right? I mean, the, I, I marvel at people's ability to be able to talk about different teams. Literally you could, we could have asked him about Wyoming and he'd been like, well, you know, I mean, if you look at two years ago when, 
Just on and on. You and could on, have right? thrown Sacramento State right at him. Totally, I forgot about Sacramento State. They're right in the mix. Right? He's about to start a new podcast focused on the whatever. Have we do have a name for it yet? The worst four is that what it is? <laughs> so the first four is the worst four. Is that what we're going? The lower quartile. No, here, here's of the lower quartile. Here's, here's what we call it. You ready? Okay. Now I, I'm hesitant here because what we have learned in the last week is that there's nothing from my childhood that relates to your guys, right? Apparently, like, like there's, there's, there's a, there is clearly a generational gap. But when you guys were in school, Eddie, you went to middle school where? Decatur Central Middle School. That's how many middle schools feed into Decatur Central? Just one. Uh, there is one Decatur Central Middle School. Yeah, that's it. That's the only one in the township. Well, sorry. Back when I was in middle school, yes. Okay. Wait, actually, I don't know. It might still be the same. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, you played baseball, it's the same. right? Sorry. Didn't you yes. have a rival? Yes, uh, a rival. Yeah, kind of. Mooresville is always our rival. Okay. Now, Jimmy, you went to middle school where? K through eight, St. Jude. Go Raiders. Okay. Now, did you guys, either one of you in middle school, whether it be a school function event or like a social thing, did you ever have a mixer? Like we had like a South Deanery dance. That's what you mean. Yeah, like other the mixer where like, yeah, yeah. Well, a mixer where like in seventh grade, it's like the first like kind of school dance of boys and girls. And like the boys are standing on one side, the girls are on the other. And it's like sure. kind of awkward because you're starting to get, you know, you're into girls, but you don't want, you know, you're like that girl's a nerd, you know, whatever. Right. Sure. But you're super nervous to like go up and talk to a girl. Right. Yeah. That the, the first dance of the mixer is just brutal. You're sweating. You have no idea how to slow dance or what you're supposed to do. You want to impress like the girls, but you more want to impress your buddies. It's all very awkward. Right. So we're going to call this this Kalamazoo event that's going to take place is going to be called the the Mixer First Dance because everybody's super uh-huh. awkward. They don't want to go to the dance because they know they're going to get completely humiliated once they get there, but they kind of want to be there because otherwise the year's over with and they want to make sure Detroit Mercy or Coppin State or Sacramento State, they're like, we're not the worst, right? We're going to be second worst and then we're going to go and this is our chance. So everybody's kind of awkwardly standing around because they don't know if they're supposed to enjoy it or not. Because you looked forward to the mixer when you were in seventh grade, but your friends weren't supposed to know it because deep down you're like, yeah, man, this thing's gonna be lame, dude. Deep down though, you're like, whoa, like there's a there's a chance over there. Like you know, I might dance with her. So you're super nervous about it, right? That's what these guys are. I like it. They go to Kalamazoo and, and they want to act like they don't care, but deep down they kind of care, right? For, for many of them, it's the first time they've ever been on national television because their <laughs> program exactly is garbage. Right. That's exactly right, right? So, I mean, the whole world is is shifting to Kalamazoo. We got Tracy Forner getting us in touch with the marketing folks there. They got this $300 million weed arena, right? So, let's go, right? I'm all for it. Yeah. I'm just saying. All the music like like that you can pump in. I mean, there, there's a, it's endless. The possibilities are endless with this. Endless possibilities. As are we, many ideas on this show. That's what we do on this show. Yep. Uh, there is some news about the Pacers because they play the Detroit Pistons tomorrow night. And we'll let you know what the latest is on one of their key cogs in the wheel. Cog in the wheel, is that does that interrupt the wheel or does that make the wheel run? I think it's a, it helps the wheel run. Cog in the machine, right? No? Is that right? Well, this guy's a key cog in the wheel for sure. He's not an obstacle. He helps the thing go. A key piston against the pistons. Anyway, we'll talk about it next. A little more Casey in the Sunshine Band for Mr. Fanta. On a Wednesday, my name is Jake Query, Jimmy Cook here as well. Eddie Garrison running the commands for us here at Query and Company. Pacers in action tomorrow night. Detroit Pistons are the foe. You know, when you think about between the Pistons and Detroit Mercy, I had mentioned this the other day, Detroit Mercy was winless. They did get a win over IUPUI. It led to a one-man court storm. 
Um, and by the way, I should again mention IUPUI and Detroit Mercy both in the Horizon League, but really good league. Somebody is going to win their right to the NCAA tournament. That tournament is going to be taking place right here. And the thing about the Horizon League tournament that's kind of cool is it is – of course, kind of the kickoff of Championship Week. You had mentioned that you love Championship Week, right? Yes. Jimmy? Love every ounce of it. And it is fun. There's no doubt about it, right? And the Horizon League has their conference tournament right here in Indianapolis, and they have it at the Coliseum. So, right, the Coliseum is just so historic. That's what I love about it is there's not a bad seat in the house, right? Yep. And – just to be able to sit there and watch, because it is fun, I went a couple of years ago, I think I, I told you that was the last thing before COVID, was I went to the Horizon League Tournament Championship, and then boom, you know, the, the world shut down, basically, right? But the Horizon League Tournament going to be here in Indianapolis. HorizonLeague.org is where you can find out all the information, scheduling, ticket information, to check out college basketball right at the Coliseum. Uh, but tomorrow night, Detroit... Pistons, who are about as bad as Detroit Mercy, they are going to be at the field house taking on the Pacers. And one of the key figures that we talked about earlier, Jimmy, that we continue to keep an eye on is Aaron Neesmith. Because he had what I think when Aaron Neesmith got hurt just before the All-Star break, it looked pretty bad, to be honest with you. And we didn't we we probably neglected to talk about it to the level that we should have on this program, but I think part of that is because we were so focused on the all-star break and you knew that he was going to get that additional time, right? So Rick Carlisle, when he was on with Kevin and Andy yesterday morning, had essentially said that Benedict Matherin, you know, clearly, as you saw on All-Star Weekend, is back from whatever was ailing him. But now it's Aaron Neesmith that we keep an eye on. And I think... While they haven't said it definitively, and while I am admittedly not a doctor, I think it is safe to say, Jimmy, that probably what we're looking at is some sort of like a high ankle sprain or or maybe like a shin splint type injury, right? Yeah, when he had initially gone down a couple weeks back or in that game against Toronto, if I remember correctly, they had labeled that it was a like a sore right shin or it was a shin issue that he was dealing with, and you had outlined as well that Coach Carlisle with his chat today with KB and Andy on the wake-up call he had mentioned that 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 was a aspect of his injury it was the lower leg and you got to monitor that carefully with him because this is a team as it stands right now that is in a packed eastern conference middle of the pack from the five seed to the play-in and you're going to have to take a no days off mentality if you want to avoid being a play-in team again there's no shame in that but for me going into the year I had them as a six-seater better. And then you go and acquire Pascal Siakam, and now that's no longer a bold prediction. That should in some ways be an expectation for this team. But to your point about Aaron Neesmith, Jake, it's not just the opportunities that are available for him, more so than they were before, even though he was you know, a regular player within this rotation and a high-level asset. With Buddy Heald gone, you are going to need the vacuum of those minutes to be taken up by guys like Aaron Neesmith, by guys like Ben Shepard if he's called upon again, by guys like Benedict Matherin. But why it's so important for Neesmith is not just that he's a double-digit scorer on this team in terms of per-game basis. He's arguably the most efficient player on this team, certainly the most efficient of their guard-forward combos. He picks his shots well. He knows where his spots are on the floor. He's not afraid to dish it off. He is very much, a, as you mentioned going to break, 
a cog of this Pacers offense that sometimes gets overlooked because he's not the biggest star name, but he's invaluable for their depth and what they're able to do. So you take him out of there, and it shouldn't rear its ugly head against Detroit, but you don't want to rush him back too quick because there is still plenty of basketball, two months worth, in fact, to be played between now and the play-in slash playoffs beginning. And if you rush him back and you lose him, you're asking, while you still have depth, a Pacers team to play further, arguably outside of their means, now down Buddy Heald because you traded him away, and potentially down Aaron Neesmith for an extended period of time if he's not given this extra little bit of rest. Who knows how long it'll be, but he is as important a piece that you need to monitor this with the same level of care you would if it was Pascal Siakam, Benedict Matherin, Tyrese Halliburton, and the Pacers will do that. You know, the um, the thing about the Siakam move, we've talked about this before, and I've heard JMV mention it, and I would tend to agree with it. The yin and yang right now of the Siakam move, and I don't know that we know yet whether or not, I, I think we have enough evidence to say it clearly looks like a move that you are going to look back on and say was a good one for them to make because he's a very talented guy. And the thing that Siakam does that I don't think you got out of Buddy Heald, who I like a lot, and I don't think you got out of Bruce Brown, is Siakam has the ability late in games. You know, Jimmy Butler is the best at this. Jimmy Butler is the best player that I've seen and Matherin might have a little bit of Jimmy Butler in him in time. But if you watch Miami Heat games, Jimmy Butler will kind of be hanging around for the majority of the game. And then all of a sudden, like midway through the fourth quarter, Jimmy Butler is the one guy. I've always said in, in every team needs to get the hell out of the way guy. A guy that like when the ball goes to him, he's like, just get the hell out of the way. I'm going to get a bucket. And you don't have to have an offense that is flowing through and designed for them when all hell breaks loose and stuff's hitting the fan and nobody really knows you know, you're discombobulated offensively. If the ball goes to that guy, he can orchestrate his own shot anywhere on the floor. Halliburton can do that, but Halliburton has to create space for himself to do it. Pascal Siakam can get the ball on the wing and in traffic navigate his way through two or three guys and get to the rim and score that in the in the end that is going to be a major asset for them but for right now what is happening with Siakam is that it because of that ability to do that and because of lack of figuring each other out Jimmy they I think their offense and the fluidity of their offense right now has slowed down a little bit because Siakam's kind of figuring out those what what Siakam is learning right now is that he doesn't always have to be that kind of a scorer and that he can move the that they move the ball around really well and find open shooters which is what they did really well with Buddy Heald. But Buddy Heald and Buddy Heald had the ability as well to create space for himself and get a jump shot up, but in terms of getting down in the lane amongst the trees and scoring tough baskets, Siakam can do that and I don't think they had anybody beforehand Matherin being the exception that could do it consistently. But that takes time to figure out when it's go time and when it's four-wheel drive grinded out time. You know what I mean? When when the cruise is in 70 and when you are slowing it down to grind through 
the snow before you get back on the interstate and you're open running. And, and right now they are figuring that out, and it is a little bit restrictive of their offense. And that's part of the luxury that you have. This is glass half full look, I get it, because at the end of the day, all fans want their team to be the top seed in the conference and win every game and break the Warriors' all-time win records in a single season. I get it. That's the dream that everybody wants. But not everybody can have that. That's a reason that's a historical precedent. Not everybody can be the one seed right away. You have to build things organically, and especially when you're a smaller market, push all the right buttons, hit all the right notes, both from a coaching standpoint as well as from roster construction. And to this point, maybe the jury's still out of the Buddy Heel deal and, and why they did it and wasn't necessary and all that, but to this point, it feels like they've done so. And they know where their ceiling is, not season-end ceiling, but a seeding ceiling with where they can realistically get to. They're not going to be the one or the two seed this year. That's not where expectations are for them. But they do have on their doorstep the ability to be a playoff team that's not having to deal with the chaos of the play-in tournament. And on top of that, even though, Jake, the standings are so stacked, from the roster familiarization post-Siakam trade, they have a grace period right now to be able to figure things out. This is a problem I'm okay with having after the All-Star break. What I don't want to have happen, and that is included by rushing Neesmith back, is having key pieces still figuring each other out right. the last week of March. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you need to get all hands on deck as soon as possible, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we come back. There's something that Eddie Garrison has never done. It stunned me. I was shocked. I wasn't saddened. It makes sense. I get it. But we're going to have to have Eddie do something for the very first time, and it is family-friendly, I promise. We'll tell you what it is and offer our tips next. So, Eddie, I don't mean this to pick on you. I, it it kind of makes – I mean, I guess I can see why. When I was a youngster, my Uncle Bob of Bob Bowen of Bowen Engineering, not Boeing, but Bowen Engineering, was a huge Purdue alum. I grew up a huge IU fan. My dad was an Indiana fan. I was an Indiana fan. But my Uncle Bob – and my cousin Doug were big Purdue fans because Bob had gone to Purdue. He was a huge Purdue fan. We went to go see Purdue. The first college football game that I ever attended, I think, I saw John Elway at Purdue throw for like 400 yards and Stanford up in ross Aid, and I really enjoyed it. But I didn't go to Purdue a lot. I don't think I went to my first game in Mackey until I was a student in college, perhaps. I grew up a huge IU fan. Um, and then I got out and I covered Purdue a lot and I had friends obviously from not only when I went to IU friends from the Lafayette area, but, um, friends from high school that went to Purdue. So I remember one night, like on a whim, you know, on a Wednesday night, we were just like, let's just go drive to Lafayette and, you know, crash in on Gangstead's place and let's go to Purdue and hang out and have fun. And what, and we did, and we, I always had a good time. Jimmy, I would assume you also probably had a few occasions to visit Purdue, correct? Yeah, I made a time or two up there. One of my best friends, shout out Nick Kuntz, he went to Purdue. We knew each other since grade school. And you know, yeah, anytime you'd get a, what's the word? Anytime you saw another chapter of the IU-Purdue rivalry, just go up there, hang out, vice versa. He came down to Bloomington, absolutely. Love to do it. Now, Eddie Garrison, young man, the pride of Decatur Central. 
who didn't know the other middle school at Decatur Central? No, there's only one middle school. So Sorry. it wasn't of late that you started living in a vacuum. This has been a habit for your entire life, right? right? Correct, yeah. Okay. So you have never been to the Purdue campus, right? Nope. You've never stepped foot in Mackey? Nope. You've never seen Ross Aid? Nope. Never been to Harry's Chocolate Shop? Nope. Never gone to Triple X? Nope. All right. So we need to do a field trip. Now, the best part about going to Mackey for me and going to Purdue is my buddy Marty Quinn. Marty's the best, man. Like, every company has people like this. And, and let me tell you a lesson in life right now. If you've got young people in the car right now, let me tell you the lesson in life, okay? It's the people, like, people think that you need to get to know the the people that are up front and, and that the faces of places are the people in the boardroom. No, 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 no. The people you need to know are the ones that are behind the scenes, the one that do all the back scenes work. As I talk about in any company, the copier guy or the copier gal. People are like, what's the copier guy? You know, when you go down to the copy machine, you got to like print something out. I guess now it'd just be a printer, but you got to print something out and you're like, oh man, this thing's jammed. Like, I have no idea what it says. Like the toner's low. There's always one person in the office here at Scotty Johnson and people are like, oh, go find Scotty. He knows how to fix everything. They're like Mikey that likes life cereal. Right, Mikey. Give it to Mikey. He he likes everything. There's you always need to know the people that know where all the bodies are buried, that know where all the doors are locked, know where all the keys are. Marty is that guy for Purdue basketball. He's the equipment manager. He is a rock solid dude. He shows up every day. He does all the work. He is the brains, one of the brains of the operation that gets no credit. And and those are the people in life that you, you got to get to know. They're the ones actually that are always running companies. Sure, you got to have CEOs, but it's people like that are the ones that are the true treasures are and the true great stories are found in people like Marty, who is one of the greatest dudes you'll ever meet. So, Eddie, we got to go up. Marty will take us back as, as I, every time I ever covered a game at Purdue. Literally, every time I've ever covered a game at Purdue when I was in television, I would go early to just go into the laundry room in Mackey and sit and BS with Marty. It was the best, right? The best. So we'll go up to Mackey. We'll go up to Purdue. We'll take you to Mackey. We'll have Marty sit there and and show you around the kind of the behind the scenes tour. Go to Triple X and get a root beer. Go to Harry's Chocolate Shop and get a beer there. And then we got to go to Ross Eight also, right? But we'll give you a tour of the facilities. I, it, you got to see the campus at least, right? Is this going to be like Shawshank Redemption where you say you're going to invite Jimmy and I over and this never happens? I, I've thought about this as well. The fact that you guys have not seen Shawshank. Have you seen The Fugitive? We can watch it on the drive. I've watched The Fugitive on TNT like <laughs> twice in the last three days. Have two you guys birds, seen ones the, I have seen The Fugitive, yes. No. We get two birds, one stone. We could put it on so, in the, the back so, seat. So let me hum you these bars and you tell me if it sounds familiar. That means nothing to you? Nothing. Okay. So we'll go up and we'll see the fugitive, yes. So now we have a laundry list. We've got to get you to, to Purdue. we got to watch Shawshank. I'm a little leery of you guys coming over to the residence. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> well, you think we're going to hurt Boo? <laughs> Possibly. Um, maybe, maybe at Shannon's house. I might volunteer Shannon for this. Shannon, we're coming over. <laughs> the guys are coming over and we're going to watch Shawshank. And then you'll get to see the whole ordeal of the dogs being fed. I mean, it, it, it's a big to-do. So we got to watch Shawshank, but we got to get you to Purdue, Eddie. We got to get you to Purdue, and then and then we should take tips from like Todd Meyer will be in here within two seconds of us ending the segment to give us tips on things you can enjoy at Purdue. Things you can enjoy at Purdue, but Triple X and Harry's are absolute musts, and 
it's a cool campus. I mean, there IU fans for whatever reason like hate it. They're like, oh man, Purdue's the worst. That's nah, cool. And then we'll go to battleground. You can see where William Henry Harrison and the boys went up and overthrew Tecumseh. Ooh, can you take us somewhere where we'll get yelled at by a poor occupant of a house that's significant that they just see Jake Query coming I, up and they're like, I'll hey, you're stupid. Take, I'll take you to Axel Rose's childhood home. I know where that is. It's in Lafayette. You're stupid. <laughs> no, it's how stupid you. That was when I was trying to videotape in the red light district in Amsterdam and one of the ladies of the night took exception. Uh, by the way, Lance Zerline going to join us next. Talk a little NFL, right? Top of the hour. Just a couple minutes. Two o'clock hour underway in Indianapolis. It is actually underway everywhere in the Eastern Time Zone. My name is Jake Query. Jimmy Cook, the other voice you hear on this program. Eddie Garrison flying controls for us and just dialed up Lance Zerline, who is an NFL Network analyst. Of course, the NFL Network is going to provide more than 50 hours of live combine coverage coming up and starting on Tuesday from here in Indianapolis. That time of year again in the NFL Network is where you will be able to visually see what we will be talking about on this radio station, and that is all of the coverage in terms of the Combine. And Lance, I will give you the biggest softball of all time because of my appreciation of you joining us, and that is this. The biggest storyline of the Combine is going to be what? Um... I mean, it's just going to be quarterbacks. It's there's never. A, I don't think there's a single. You know, it's going to be, frankly, one, two, three. It's going to be Caleb Williams, Drake May, and Jaden Daniels, and how those guys shake out. I don't think. I mean, look, if Drake May just kills it, or if Jaden Daniels kills it, and Caleb doesn't look very good, which is hard when you're on air, but it's happened before. Um, it could generate a lot more conversation because. Media members love to do nothing more than create a narrative that the number one pick is unsettled. So I do think that's going to be one of the, the narratives at the combine that, that develops is, is will the Bears trade the number one pick? Is it all, oh, is there now competition for the number one pick? I think that's, that's really what it's going to be. I think that's, that's it. And it's also going to be when, when we walk out of there, it's going to be Malik Neighbors because Malik Neighbors is about to test great. And there's going to be more conversation about him potentially going ahead of Marvin Harrison Jr. Really? Because, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. here, Lance, as you know, here in Indianapolis, everybody had the brilliant idea of like, the Colts need to just trade up and get Marvin Harrison Jr. right now because Marvin Harrison played for the Colts. Right. But um, Harrison Jr., though, still, we're talking what, probably at worst, top six, 10? No, I'd say at worst, top five. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'd be shocked if he got past four, honestly. Um, I think there are going to be some teams that have neighbors ahead of um, ahead of uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., but it wouldn't be by much. I mean, it's just you just maybe prefer the speed and you know the elite speed and playmaking potential of neighbors over the polish and well-rounded game of Marvin Harrison Jr. It, it would just be one of those things where you're just kind of you know you like this one better or this one better, and it's it's in the same class, so. Um, I, I don't think Marvin Harrison Jr. falls below four. I mean, I think he could be a Patriot. If not a Patriot, you know, I think he could be uh, uh, an Arizona Cardinal, either three or four. But worst case scenario, I couldn't see him, you know, falling below five, for example. the team. Let me ask you this, Lance. Lance Zerline is our guest, and I'm going to fall right into what you were just talking about, right, of like it's, you know, we start falling in love with potential narratives or that may never happen. But when you're looking at, 
for example, if you're Chicago and you're thinking, let's say Chicago does say, you know what, we're going to give this time with Justin Fields and we'll, we'll, we'll trade out of this for somebody that wants a quarterback. The franchises that would be most likely that have the combination of assets and desire for a young quarterback to move into the front three where they, they are not currently right now would be which franchises? The front three? Well, yeah. I mean, in other words, if the, so if those three quarterbacks yeah, you no, mentioned – I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I didn't know if I should include – you know, I didn't know if you meant trying to get up for Kayla Williams. Because, Williams, see, I don't think the Bears are going to – you're going to have to really crush the Bears with an offer for them to move out of one, in my opinion. So I just don't see any way you you get ready to pay Justin Fields a second contract with the money that's going to be worth when he hasn't proven himself as a passer, and the ability to go back to a rookie contract is just is just going to be too strong. So I don't think there's any way the Bears get out of number one because I don't think anyone's going to pay what it takes to get to number one. But to get inside the top three for a quarterback, if we're not talking just Caleb Williams, um, I think I think the Giants have some desperation. I mean, I think it's going to be less about your, it's going to be less about draft capital this year because you can always fire up. You know, the, the Browns fired in three first-round picks, future first to the Houston Texans. So, and this will be the last year of those picks for the Texans. Uh, so you can use future first if you really want to. The whole key is you don't want to be too far away from the, you know, the drop. You don't want the drop to be too far because then the sliding scale of, of how much you have to give up goes way up. So I think when you look at the teams who might be interested – you know, the Minnesota Vikings obviously would come to mind. They're a top 10 team. Uh, the the Giants at number six would obviously come to mind. And then, you know, I saw Mike Tannenbaum throw something out there that I thought was intriguing about Deshaun Watson to the to – the, he said, hey, what about a, a trade with Deshaun Watson going to the, you know, going to the, the Giants and then the Giants send Daniel Jones and draft picks and all this and that. But, you know, you could also look the same way – at the Cleveland Browns, if they wanted to get out from under that contract and you wanted to see about, you know, jumping up there to Washington, for example, and saying, hey, why don't you guys take a look at, at Deshaun Watson potentially? And so that's that's an example of something that could happen out of the blue with a, a quarterback that's established. But I really don't think that Washington is going to want to uh, at two. And then I think New England will be open for business. But I don't think Washington at two is really going to want to move back beyond you know, maybe the top six or seven picks, to be honest with you. NFL Network's Lance Zerline is our guest. Lance, from different conversations with scouts, those that cover the league, we know that the combine itself, when it begins next week, is a small piece in the larger profile of any prospect. Whether it's their game tape, whether it's their pro days, it's a good mix and blend of evaluating talent. From your perspective, though, in today's NFL, who has the most to gain from participating in the combine is it the prospects themselves is it the scouts the franchises who has the most to gain next week um well i mean i think i think it's i still think it's a, a healthy blend of both you know a lot a lot of people will look you don't have to there there are plenty of players who wouldn't have to work out in the combine and they'd still get drafted high i shouldn't say plenty there are some but you better have really good football character because right off the bat, there's going to be a concern. There's going to be a concern. Is this guy a diva? What are we doing here? Is he just being run by his agent? Is he going to be a problem when we get him in the uh, in the locker room? There's a lot more that goes into it than just you know what your what your measurables are and what the numbers you post are. You want to ultimately you want to have a room filled with guys who are single minded in their purpose of winning a championship. 
And it's easy to, to, to derail that with players who are selfish or when it becomes a, a me versus we attitude. And so I think that, you know, for the scouts and, and the evaluators, I should say, obviously seeing these guys work out on the field, seeing their movement, seeing, you know, what, what some of the numbers post, because I know that there's that, that old stale line of underwear Olympics. But the reality is, yeah, some things don't matter as much as others. And ironically enough, the 40-yard dash is meaning less and less behind the scenes as teams get their hands on miles per hour on, you know, in terms of actual play speed uh, from games. But I can say that, man, there's so much that's important. There's so much with explosion numbers on broad jump and, and vertical lead to tell you something about you know, the, the power in the hips. There's so much in terms of change of direction on field drills and, and with some of the, you know, with, with some of the um, uh, testing, the pro, the, the pro athletic, the, the shuttle run that they do. There's, there's things that really, really do matter, not to mention getting behind the scenes and talking to these guys, getting the medical. So, I mean, the combine of, is of tremendous importance, and it's not just to the, the teams but to the players. And I think if, if the players ever, you know, every once in a while you'll hear this stuff, the players should just, you know, should boycott and they should get paid to do this. This is your job interview for a huge paycheck and an opportunity to take care of your family for the rest of your life. Don't screw it up with, with trying to squeeze the golden goose. This is just part of the process and should be, I think, viewed as such. You mentioned concerns if you're skipping the combine or not at the combine and the intangibles of a player's character often matter a great deal in the grand scheme of things with talent evaluation. How often in your experience in, in, in covering this, is it a misevaluation because that that is, I don't want to say a stereotype, but that's often if it's a wide receiver or something like that, skipping the combine, oh, is this guy have an ego problem? How often does that happen initially but then the deeper you dive into the player maybe it's just a one-off thing and, and not a cause for concern well most guys don't skip the combine so i mean we're kind of we're kind of just talking about something that doesn't if you're talking about don't work out at the combine or skip guys don't skip the don't work out yeah I, about, I apologize oh, yeah not working out yeah. okay so no 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 that okay well well not working out is not the end of the world that, that's i want to make sure that we're clear on that guys who choose not to work out all they've done frankly is just they have just created more pressure at their pro day. And uh, sometimes there's not going to be general managers. Many times there won't be general managers at certain pro days. So you miss your chance to shine in front of, uh, in front of a larger number of personnel from a particular team. So that's, that's concern number one. And if you don't do as well, you still have the pro day as your retest to fall back on. Um, no, not not working out. It's not going to hurt you from a football character standpoint. Not at all. It's it's a personal choice. They're not going to kill you on that. What I will say though is that um, when it comes to evaluations on character and things like that, personal character, you have to remember that these these scouts, these area scouts for the Colts, right? They'll go out to to multiple locate. They they have their own areas, and they're talking to coaches. They're talking to strength coaches. They're talking to uh, people you wouldn't even believe. Uh, to get as much intel on a player because in part they're they're you know they're private investigators where they have to uncover everything so that they can have the discussions in meetings so they know who these players are and they can work their way around certain topics you know they they gather it over two and three years and then they address these issues with the players at meetings at the combine for example or personal you know when they come in for their individual workouts so it's important that Chris Ballard and his staff for example know 
what the ticking time bombs are, know what the issues are, and sub, but but also likewise know who the great characters are, know who the guys who really care about winning. And I know the Ballard more than anyone. It is, yeah, he loves traits, but man, he is really really big in the football character, and he wants a certain type of guy in the building. And you know, to do that, you got to know who they are, and that that doesn't happen at the combine. That happens, you know, over a two and three year process with those area scouts who are digging in and going to the schools and getting as much intel and watching guys practice and reading the body language. It's a, it's a, it's an art form, frankly. Lance Zerline is our guest. His mock draft is available at NFL.com. He will be part of the 50 hours of essentially nonstop ubiquitous coverage from the Combine for the NFL Network. Lance, Indianapolis in round one is selecting 15th. It is my opinion that – the Colts, and I think most Colts fans would say this, when you watched deep into the playoffs, the one thing the Colts, I think, could use is open space playmakers. I'm not saying those guys are a dime a dozen, but certainly even, the, you know, they got a they got a crowded tight end room, but they don't have necessarily like open space yard after catch type tight ends. Do they have at 15, are they going to have the choice of some guys that can help them in that area? Well, I mean, you're basically asking me a Brock Bowers question. And, yes, I think 15 Brock Bowers will be available for the Colts to consider. I don't care as much. People make a big deal about uh, when I you know, I put Jatavion Sanders, a, a tight end from Texas, to San Francisco at 32 and, and, my, and my first mock. And, you know, 49ers say, we got a bunch of tight ends. Do you have the right one? Do you have dudes? Right. I mean, you don't, It's you never worry about – drafting a talented player into a position where you have a lot of players. Do you have players who do what he does? No, you do not. And I like Granson fine, but I mean, the fact is, and I like, you know, Mallory did a nice job last year is better than I expected. But the fact is he is rare run after catch stuff. He's basically like a, it's like watching Mike Allstott with the ball in his hands um, after the catch. And so Brock Bowers is just a unique player. He's not, he doesn't really fit the height, weight length, mold that Ballard likes, but when you see him test, he's going to run fast, he's going to jump high for a tight end, so he is going to match it there, but he is a guy who helps you mismatch defenses, and you make a good point. In today's NFL, you need to have weapons that do it. You need to have a variety of of weaponry to, to go attack defenses. And, you know, you have a, a ball winner with Pittman, and we'll see what happens with Pittman. You have a vertical with Pierce. You need to have a guy who can, who can really kill it in the middle of the field. And Daniel Jeremiah, when I did move the sticks with them, he kind of, he kind of thought Brock Bowers is a combination of George Kittle and, and Dallas Clark from the Colts, the, the old Colts days. And I think that's a pretty good comparison. And so, yeah, I think Bowers will be there because it's hard to slot uh, tight ends in the top 15, 16 picks. It's just really difficult these days. However, he is a guy who could be a special weapon for for Richardson. And, and you look, historically, young quarterbacks have loved having good – Got to have that you know, safety good, net, right? Good tight ends. Yeah, you want to have that safety blanket, and that's what Brock Bowers can be. This draft, Lance Zerline, if you were a general manager that is in desperate need of a certain position – that would be causing you to lose sleep because it just quite frankly is a year where that position is not very deep. That would be what? Well, I think it's linebacker. It's not a great linebacker draft. So if you want an inside linebacker, I mean, you're not going to find one in the first round. And then when it does pop up, you need to, you need to get, there's going to be maybe three or four you want to get your hands on. After that, I think it becomes real, real average, real fast. And 
I also think defensive tackle is going to be a tough one too because there's some talented guys, but there are some questions with some of those guys. So once I think the the top four to five go off the board, you know it's going to be I think it's going to be a little trickier. Running back also, running back there's some. I think there's some average running backs in this draft. There's there's a few guys. Jonathan Brooks from Texas. He's coming off an ACL tear, but he's my my favorite running back, and I think he goes in the second. And then Jalen Wright from Tennessee is my second favorite. But that's another one that you know. Luckily, it's not viewed as as an elite position that must be addressed early, and you can find runners all over the place. But uh, finding running backs is going to be one where it's probably best just to wait it out until late day two, early day three, and start looking at that point. Is there a position, Lance, in your opinion, that let's say, I mean, running back is, is the, the first thought, right? That, that the, the position has just been devalued. But then all of a sudden you realize this year, you know, if you got a good running back, it can be a huge difference for you. But is there a position that seemingly has higher value than, say, it did 10 years ago? Well, I think tight end. Um, tight end is one because now tight ends are looked at as, and it was really happening then. It just wasn't, I don't think teams necessarily valued it as much. Do you really go back? Bill, Bill Belichick was trying to do the two tight end thing for a long time. He had figured out that from a matchup standpoint, it really made it hard to match up on players. And so, you know, he, he had a couple different players. I'm trying to remember in the, like around 2003, 2004, tight ends that he uh, targeted that, that didn't get it done. Then he found Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. We know what happened with Hernandez, but you know, from a football standpoint, he really did get it right with those two, and it was causing major issues. And then we know that Gronk was just a, a monster. But when you have a really good pass-catching tight end, you look at Tony Gonzalez, you look at uh, Antonio Gates, you don't have to have great, great wide receivers. You look at Travis Kelsey. It doesn't turn. It, it really alters. You know, teams now look at that as, "Hey, wait a minute, we've got a great pass catcher. You can call him tight end if you want, but you got a target and you have a primary target." And so, I think having a pass catching tight end who can also block is great. But when you have a guy that you know is a playmaker at tight end, I think it really changes things because, as anyone in a fantasy football draft will tell you, once those top tight ends are gone, it's like it falls off the map. Well. Because that's what's happening in the NFL, too. If you have one, it's an enormous weapon that you have. And you don't find great tight ends typically in the fourth round, fifth round. You do find wide receivers that come out of nowhere in the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds. that turn into really good starters. And you know, guys like Devontae Adams, he'll be a Hall of Famer one day. So um, I think that's the big difference is tight ends. If you have a, a, a really good class like you had last year, that can be something special. And that's why... Bowers, to me, and Sanders, both of those guys from from Texas, they have a chance to be really kind of special in the passing game. And after that, I mean, it just falls completely off. So I think tight end is one, because of the matchup potential it gives you, is one that you have to take a look at as being a little different now than maybe 10 years ago. Lance Zierlein of NFL Network is our guest. His most recent 1.0 mock draft for the 2024 campaign is up on NFL.com. And I know you alluded to this earlier, Lance, but when Jake asked a question regarding what they could do at 15 and Brock Bowers is the player that you highlighted in your 1.0. And I I understand mocks are just exercises. We can't possibly simulate what's going to happen within three spots, let alone 15. But for the sake of the exercise, 
if Brock Bowers is taken before the Colts come around, you highlight like we've done on this show, receiver, cornerback, pass rush, O-line. There's a lot of areas where the Colts could choose to go. And when looking at Anthony Richardson having a de facto rookie season this year, if Bowers is off the board, where's the most likely area if you were managing the Colts you would go? I think probably um, it would either be rush uh, defensive end. Well, it'd be okay. So it'd be I'll give you targets specifically. Byron Murphy, Texas defensive tackle. If you let Grover walk, uh, Byron is going to be Bowers going to love him. I mean, this guy is pure lean mass, three down uh, player. Um, he has a chance to be really really good. So I would say a defensive tackle like Byron Murphy. I would say a pass rusher like maybe. Um, like maybe Dallas Turner from uh, uh, Dallas Turner or, or maybe even Chop Robinson. That'd be a little early for Chop, but I, I also have a really high grade on Chop. And then I would say offensive tackles the next one. Guys like, you know, long-arm guys like uh, uh, Guyton out of Oklahoma and Amarius Mims. Uh, people aren't putting them as high in their dra- mock drafts right now, but there's going to be a run on tackles. So don't be shocked if those tackles start flying off the board inside the top 20. So those are guys that I think I would um, probably not wide receiver. Once you get outside of the top three wide receivers, I'm not really a fan of taking anyone there. You know, <clears throat> I'd love to see cornerback as an option there. I just don't know if the Colts will draft cornerback in the first. Lastly, Lance, and again, 50 hours worth of coverage on the NFL Network. Lance will be a part of that. Mock draft. Well, you guys NFL. are doing great com. at promoting this. I'll make sure and – let Andrew Howard know. These guys are really good at promoting. <laughs> hey, man. I'm telling you that. Hey, listen, Lance. I mean, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? Yeah, I mean, we know how it goes, right? Hey, lastly, the uh, there's interest of this just because of the local ties, obviously, with him playing at Indiana. Uh, and uh-huh. it was a great story over the course of the year. But Michael Penix, he slots uh-huh. where? Like, what round are we looking at? I think we're maybe looking at uh, the earliest second and the latest uh, fourth. The only way he falls fourth is medicals. The medicals, you know, he's had an ACL tear in the same knee twice. He's had a shoulder issue. He's had shoulder injuries on both shoulders, although, you know, I talked to I talked to his agent. We were talking a little bit about that. And I, I don't know if one of the shoulder things is going to be as big a deal. But, um, I, you know, when you watch Penix, he's, he's really good. He was great. If you only watch him against Texas, you think he's the best quarterback that's come out of football in 10 years. Um, but then Michigan showed one of the areas that is kind of a weakness for him, and it's He's not a guy who throws well on the move. When you move his feet, he is his his completion percentage plummets, and I think he has to be in rhythm. He's he's operated in a very quarterback friendly uh, system, but he also did well to to bolster the system. So he he can throw the intermediate throws. He's got a a whip a whip quick uh, release. He's got plenty of, of power in that arm, but he needs to get more consistent. Uh, I think throwing with touch underneath and also uh, with, with being able to operate outside of the pocket. In today's NFL, they'll, chase, they'll do whatever they have to to chip. They think that's your weakness. They'll chase you out, and you're going to have to prove you can throw on the move and not just throw it away or not panic and throw it near somebody's feet. So I think with Penix, the good is really good, but the areas of concern will cause them to, to fall into the second, and the injury stuff is what could cause them to fall below there. So I think he ends up being the uh, – I think he probably ends up being the, what, fifth quarterback off the board. So he's the Hendon Hooker of this year's draft, right? Yeah, I would say so, although I would – yeah, I like Hendon Hooker coming out. But Penix, to me, has is a little more scheme independent. With Hooker, you didn't know how he would do outside of tennis at Josh Heupel's offense. 
with Penix, I see him make throws. Like, I know Penix can make throws. So I have more faith uh, in Penix, even though Hendon Hooker was that, you know, was that guy coming off the ACL tear and was a legit dual-threat quarterback. Penix is not a runner. So that's one thing that kind of works against him right now. Lance, all we ask is that when you come to Indianapolis for the combine, for part of the coverage, that you spend a lot of money here. That's it, right? <laughs> is that all? That's all we I'll ask. Make yeah. sure my per diem goes to use. Don't That's, worry. <laughs> go to, go to the restaurants, have a couple beers, enjoy it, and soak in the I city. Usually do. All right. I usually do. Lance, we appreciate it, man. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right, Lance Zerline again, NFL.com, where he has his mock draft, and he does have the Colts 15th right now, going with Bowers out of Georgia. Which, you know, the, the the real interesting thing is just the fact that there are positions that, and it's going to be curious, and I'm not saying that's one of them, but when he was talking about edge, for example, yeah, you know, that is an area that Ballard has spent highly both through, you know, free agency, but also, you know, you've got picks up there with Dio and, and Pay, and those guys have shown flashes, but yet to show like every single play consistent level uh, of contribution. I, I mean, I think they're good players. But you can only go to that well, well, you would think so many times correct. before people are like, come on, man. Before you start thinking, maybe that's not the area you're great at evaluating talent, and why would you waste a first-round pick there? Now, again, who knows? Like You, you see all the time players within that range be high-level contributors, and, and there's no doubt that they need help along the defensive line, depending on where things go with their free agency. Highlighted if Grover Stewart ends up departing. For the Colts, there is a sense of, and it's frustrating for me, Jake, because I'm always an offensive-first guy, I'd love Brock Bowers for the Colts. I think as he outlines it, it becomes a safety blanket for Anthony Richardson. I think Shane Steichen wants to operate an offense that has a clear-cut, number one, do-it-all tight end. And maybe he doesn't be that right out of the gate, but that could develop into that alongside Anthony Richardson. If Bowers isn't there, and it's never the sexy pick, and I like the sexy pick being made, but they might have their hand forced where you're reaching on a wide receiver that would be available in the second round because that initial run happens the first 10 picks, and now you're left with a tough decision. Do you go tackle? Do you shore up the defense? Do you reach on a corner? Like that, The way things could play for them on the board, there might not be a wide receiver that they couldn't get in the second round they would reach for at 15 if Bowers is off the table. The interesting part of this with Brock Bowers is that Daniel Jeremiah said that on this podcast um, with NFL Network that moving the sticks that if Brock Bowers is selected like within the top 15 picks or something, he's going to be a top five paid tight end in the NFL. And that's the part that's head scratching or where owners and GMs are trying to figure out, is it worth selecting Brock Bowers that high considering he's going to be a rookie in the NFL and he's going to be one of the highest paid tight ends already the moment he gets drafted by some team in the, in the league. You got to do something to help the rookie, even if it means unprecedented waters, that that needs to be done. You know my favorite player in the draft. Because, <laughs> you know, now with the draft, you get the guys that go up there on the stage and Roger Goodell, like, bear hugs them and, and they do a little dance together. Bismack is not it's got, a prospect, Jake. You know that, close, right? Okay, close. All right, I'm sure. With the 15th pick... This is my David Stern voice, of course. In the 2024 NFL Draft. Oh, I got it. The Indianapolis Colts select Kool-Aid McKinstry from the University of Alabama. And then the guy's got to come on stage and immediately go, oh, yeah. And I mean, make a grand entrance, right? Yes. He's got to. Yes. He's got to. We'll get it back on the rails. Pacers and Pistons tomorrow night. little preview of that next. Thirsty riding a skateboard. Me too. This is a job for Kool Aid. Hey, 
There's got to be a redone, remixed ad of that with Cooley McKenzie in that, right? Like, if he, there has to be. I would think, yeah. I mean, I thought the best name was Clinton Haha Dix. I mean, there were a million jokes you could make out of that, but uh, out of Alabama. But Cooley McKenzie, I'm all in on that for the draft. Um, Pacers, Pistons tomorrow night. We talked about Aaron Neesmith. Looks like, uh, you know, he's getting closer. The injury coming off of All-Star Weekend, probably not as severe as once was feared when it happened. That is the good news for uh, the Pacers. Also, news from yesterday that we haven't touched on that we probably should because it's of interest. Um, Jimmy, I don't know. Are you able to look up? If you were to look up the the way that the college football standings yes. finished this yeah, year. I got that. Yep. So what we know is this next year for the 12-team playoff. Okay, so follow along at home, if you will. The 12-team playoff for college football next year will be the following. Of the five conference champions, so you're talking about the Big Ten or the Big 20 or the Big 18 or whatever it's called now, the, the Big 12, right? The SEC, SEC, the ACC. Which one am I missing here? Well, I mean, in that instance, you're missing the Pac-12, but that's not a thing you're missing right. after that. Um, Big 12, SEC. They're talking about the Big Five conferences here. Five conference champions. Big 12, Big Ten. Somebody help me out here. SEC. Well, it's saying the five highest-ranked conference champions. Well, the so like, five highest-ranked conference champions. Well, uh, so there have to be... Well, so like if, if SMU was ranked in the top, would they be... Or they're in the Big 12, aren't they? Okay, mind. so I don't know. of any I don't know. conference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's how I understand it. Any conference highest-ranked by the committee of those champions. Okay. So that this year, that would have been who? Michigan, Washington, because they were in the Pac-12. Right. Texas. Florida and State, Alabama, Florida State. Okay. Yep. Oh, the did I say the SEC? Okay. Yeah, now. we did. Yep. So there's that. Then the rest of the field are the four highest ranked conference champions. Oh, I'm sorry, the the four highest ranked conference champions receive a bye. the The rest of the field then simply is made up by the remaining teams in terms of the college football rankings. Correct. As I understand it, yes. So it's kind of. It's kind of the same. It's just the top 12. Essentially, it's the top 12, more teams, right? But More teams get in. The only like statewide local nugget with this, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on it because I'm fine with it. But as you know, I'm a big Notre Dame guy. Great-grandfather went there. I was raised... A lot of Catholic people wind up being Notre Dame fans. I was raised Catholic. Went to South Bend all the time. That was where we went to watch college football. Notre Dame will not be the beneficiary of a first-round buy ever unless they join a conference. That's the negative to this for them. The flip side, they have the advantages of every other power school that it should be easy for them in theory with what they think they are to be in the top 12 every year. But on top of that, assuming they are in the mix of top six, top seven, they're going to host a game at Notre Dame Stadium. 
They're going to host a playoff game. So that's the trade-off. You're not going to get a bye, but in theory, you're more than likely hosting a playoff game at Notre Dame Stadium. There was backlash of, oh, look at Notre Dame and their independence. This is what they get for it. Well, your trade-off is no first-round bye, but you still get your independence. You still get to negotiate your own media rights deals, and you're likely going to get a home playoff game. So that, that's in, a win for me. So this scenario, though, okay? The last year they would have been out, to clarify. They were 16th. This scenario, take Liberty, who last year was undefeated, right? Yep. At 12-0. and But they were ranked 24th, right? Yeah. So they would not have gotten in. Correct. Because they are a, they are not one of the five highest ranked conference winners. Correct. Nor are they a remaining conference, a remaining ranked team, right? Correct. So they were there. Still, would be people rolling around complaining, right? Right, but that's life. You ha- we complain about, and sometimes rightfully so, teams getting snubbed on the bubble in college basketball in a field of sixty eight. There's always going to be complaints. There's always going to be calls for expansion. This is, Jake, I'm sure you had similar conversations as a childhood sports fan when you're debating with your friends. This was always the style I wanted. Maybe not all the rules. I'm not saying I'm a visionary because I wasn't, it wasn't a unique idea, but I wanted a 12-team playoff at least because I think that everybody deserves a bite at the apple, even with Alabama's dominance at the heart of all these discussions. And that dominance has faded away now. We know the Nick Saban era is done. NIL has changed a lot. But yes, you're always going to get complaints. I like the idea of 12 teams. And additionally, you're never going to hear me complain about adding more teams because I love college football. I want to see more games. I'm excited at the prospect of getting unique matchups of real substance that we would not have had otherwise. I kind of like the chaos. What I'd like them to, to do for them to do, here's what I would like for the college football rankings to be. Okay. Okay. This is the format that I would like. Thank you for coming to our press conference. Uh, we're announcing the college football playoff rankings for uh, the upcoming season. I appreciate everybody's interest. The first thing we're going to do is. Why is your playoff committee guy moonlighting as a CIA agent on the side? That, because that's what we do. It's okay. all top all right. secret stuff, right? We were in a very closed door meetings. Uh, we are going to allow in the top six ranked conference champions. Um, and then after that, it will be ranked seven through 12, excluding Ohio State. If Ohio State is one of those teams, we will be the top five ranked teams and uh, the second highest ranked Big Ten team. Welcome uh, Michigan or Washington or Oregon to the fray. And then the rest, but we are not going to allow in Ohio State just because we want to hear their fans complain. Thank you for attending and uh, enjoy our refreshments. That's how I would do it. Ohio State fans are never going to be pleased anyway. We really missed out on the opportunity to bring back the elixir. Ah, you're right. <laughs> I you forgot spent about the so much I, money on that. I've got thing. I, you know what? You I got to pay the resubscription. Budget. For those that don't know, the elixir that we have is where Gosh. we take. Um, that is our machine that takes a an athlete quote in print. We put it into the elixir, and then it deciphers what the athlete really was trying to say. Okay, what it was really trying to say. That, that, that's how the elixir works, right? Um, By the way, uh, CBS Sports did a mock of way too early prediction for what the 2024 college football playoff could look like. They had Liberty as 12th, the last team in as a conference USA champion. So, I mean, you're just, you're going to map out. But that doesn't scenarios. make sense though. It doesn't make no, no, sense. No, 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 Sorry. 
let me re-clarify if I'm, if I'm mis-explaining that. Okay. They are mocking out what they think will happen next season. Gotcha. That's not okay. going off of this past year's rankings. Yeah, because it does make you wonder if they're going to change the way they rank teams because Correct. of this formula, right? I mean, you would think that Liberty would move its way up because they're like, look, they're going to know that that discussion is going to be in play, right? Correct. So they would have to, to theoretically, they would have to move them up. And in this in this mock, it went SEC champion, Big Ten champion, ACC champion, Big 12 champions, there's four conferences. Everybody else from their simulation of 2024 was at large except Liberty. You know, money is a huge play. And I know that money is the big factor in all of this, right? Especially now that you have player opt-outs and all of that. I mean, many of the bowl games, I'm sure many of the sponsors of bowl games, corporate sponsors of bowl games, were like, look, you know, they called the NCAA and they're like, listen, we are not one of your – we're not in your rotation of playoff bowl games. And we don't necessarily want to deep fry and then eat our mascot like the Pop-Tart Bowl. And and we don't want to dunk stuff over the winning coach like the Mayo Bowl. Darn. And so that's the only way to keep relevance now because all of the players are opting out of this and not playing in our bowl game and – the interest level is waning and fans, fewer fans are traveling because they don't want to watch the JV team. It's like the spring game. And I'm sure that's the real motivating factor for making more bowl games relevant. I get it. But a huge part of this, in terms of like a seed that was planted, you know, when you look at in in the United States, and I'm being a little bit flippant here, but the Statue of Liberty in New York City is the great symbol of the American dream, right? Give me your poor, your huddled masses. Like, this is the this is the opportunity for you. One of the things that truly did open the floodgates for the huddled masses of the college football teams that didn't have a chance to get into the playoff was the Statue of Liberty play that Boise State ran mm-hmm. that shocked Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl because that was the first time that finally an olive branch was extended to a non-Power 5 team, and they came in and shocked the world and did so in an unbelievably entertaining and dramatic fashion. And then all of a sudden, you started to doubt now have people saying, the liberties of the world deserve their shot. Yep. The you know the Cincinnati's of the world deserve their shot. If they've gotten to this point, they deserve the shot because look what Boise State did. They got written off for years, and then finally they let them in, and Boise State said, yeah, we're here to play. And, and they did. And you know what? Fiesta for everybody, right? There's one clarifier to this conversation I want to explain, but I'll do it on the other side after the bets because I don't think we have time to do it here. You going to scoop that? I'll, I'll have a scoop, potentially. All right. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day, a good mix of action across the board. But we start, of course, with the round of 16. <laughs> Champions League continues across the pond. We'll take Arsenal to win on the money line over Porto. We'll also take Barcelona as a tie-no-bet. So that means if it's a draw, you get your 
money back as they take on Napoli. Only other soccer bet, MLS gets in action tonight. If you followed the show last summer, you know how good Lionel Messi is at any time scorer was for us. We'll go that same way tonight as Inter-Miami gets their season started against Real Salt Lake. College hoops lay the six and a half on Duke on the road against Miami. And as much as it pains me to do it, I don't want to have any action on this game. But if I'm forced to, I'll make the tough call. Nebraska wins on the road at Assembly Hall tonight. I'll take that on the money line. But you're not forced to, Jimmy, so you don't have to play it. I feel obligated. You don't have a play. You don't so have a play today. So you're going to get. I'm not, so Nebraska's getting. just asking you. Nebraska's getting their first road Big Ten win tonight. Incredible. Pop the champagne. Way to go, Cornhuskers. Good job. Eddie, you don't have any plays, correct? Correct. All right. Those are our bets. None? Did you say Real Saint, Saint, uh, Salt Lake? Have you ever fl- flown over Salt Lake? I think I just said Real Salt Lake. Isn't it Real? Is it Real Madrid? Is. I don't know. Yeah, is there a fake Salt Lake? There is a Real Madrid. I don't know if it's Real Salt Lake. I really hope it is Real Salt Lake. <laughs> I All I know is one time I flew over the Great Salt Lake. It's faux I, Salt Lake. <laughs> I thought it was so cool. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. When I was younger, and I'm talking like in college, Salt Lake City was one of those places I thought it would be so cool to work as a sports director because the Jazz were really, you know pretty good when I was in college, and I'm like, man, it would be so cool to be the salt the the Salt Lake City like sports director, cover the Jazz, and live like in a huge house right on the lake. That was the dream. Seems like a plausible dream, right? Sure. And then I realized that Salt Lake is this huge, extremely smelly lake full of salt. That like no one lives within ten miles of, but literally it's you know what I mean. Think of the value on property you could have had once you found out that information. <laughs> That's the one guy that lives out at the lake. Just goes out, you know. You can like it's like the Dead Sea. You can float in it and just you know. One thing I wanted to explain on the college football playoff as they reformatted that when we mentioned that for the twelve team playoff, five conference champions make the field guaranteed. The five highest ranked conference champions. The top four get the automatic one through four. You can't do worse than that. For the rest of the field, that includes the American, the Conference USA, Independence, the Mid-American, the Mountain West, and the Sun Belt. They are all competing for that last guaranteed spot. But if it is like Liberty, even with Notre Dame, you're not guaranteed fifth. That is just the best you can ever do unless you have a season that's better than a SEC Big Ten type program. So that's the qualifier. I want to make sure everybody knew that. That's how another conference champion gets in because there's more than four conferences in college football. We knew that, but that was the clarifier I wanted. All you can do is earn a spot in the field. Uh, Robbie Hummel tomorrow, did you say, Eddie? 245. All right. He's the closer. Well, Maybe we'll be talking about that Nebraska shocker that Jimmy has come up with. Uh, Brian's in next. John is off. We will be back with you at noon tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening to Query and Company here. Did you say rap, Eddie? I do it on time? Did I get out on time there? You're shaking your no. head. Kalamazoo's never been prouder. <laughs> You're 35, 36, 37, 38. Kalamazoo, baby. 40, We're all in. 40. We'll talk to you tomorrow.